Guess what, cinephiles? I've just heard something absolutely mind-blowing. Okay, so you know when you search for something on Netflix, what you get is only a tiny fraction of what Netflix actually has. Netflix actually has more than 18,000 titles globally, but only like 6,000 of those are available in the U.S., so you're missing out on literally thousands of great shows, unless you use ExpressVPN. Yeah, Steve, ExpressVPN is an app that lets you change your online location. So like, for example, if you're looking for stuff that's from another country, you're based here in the United States, you actually change your online location to Australia or the UK so you can control where you want Netflix to think you're located. They have over 100 different locations. They're on ExpressVPN. So you can, you can gain access to like thousands of of new shows no matter where you live. And this works with many other streaming services too there. You guys have Disney Plus or Hulu or Max or the BBC iPlayer, which is the one I use. I know I've used ExpressVPN to connect to Australia because I really love this show called Have You Been Paying Attention? I just put myself in Melbourne and I get access to it. You sign up using your email, but you immediately get access to the stuff. I've used the BBC iPlayer to watch a number of shows there on the BBC like Law & Order UK and others. And sometimes this show Guilty that I love that uh, screens there, when the new seasons pop up, because it takes like four months to get them on PBS, I watch them there using ExpressVPN. And it's incredible how easy it is and how simple it is to use. So why should you use ExpressVPN? Well, first of all, it is super fast. That means you can stream everything in HD with no buffering. It works on any device. So I'm an Apple guy, which means I've already installed it on my Mac, on my iPhone, on my iPad, and on my Apple TV. I'd install it on my Apple Watch if I could, and it encrypts your data. Now, this is hugely important because it protects your privacy and your security to keep you safe from hackers. So stop missing out on great TV and get thousands of new shows with ExpressVPN. We got them to give you guys three extra months of free use when you use our special link, expressvpn.com slash cinephiles. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N.com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S to get three extra months completely free. Hi, this is Steve. Film critic at large, Scott Mance, has been on four of my all-time favorite episodes of The Cinephiles. First, to discuss the greatest Star Trek movie of all time, Wrath of Khan. Next, for Ridley Scott's sci-fi noir masterpiece, Blade Runner. Then, Steven Spielberg's groundbreaking Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And finally, the iconoclastic Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Four great films, four great podcasts. But, there was only one problem. Every one of those movies is science fiction. So, at the end of our last episode, I challenged Scott to pick a film that he was equally passionate about, but in a completely different genre. And boy, did he. You see, in addition to being a huge science fiction fan, Scott also happens to be a Beatle maniac. And guess what? John and I are right there with him. So this week on The Cinephiles, we are digging into the Beatles' groundbreaking first film, A Hard Day's Night. Made in 1964, this Richard Lester comedy is irreverent, chaotic, fast-paced, and backed by one of the greatest soundtracks in film history. I mean, it would have to be, right? After all, it's the Beatles. So, if you haven't seen A Hard Day's Night, there's a fantastic Criterion Collection Blu-ray that is available on our website, cinephiles.net. Check it out, and then come back this Friday for the return of the great Scott Mance to discuss the Beatles' A Hard Day's Night, right here on the cinephiles. 
Welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a voiceover artist, writer, producer, and host over at Collider there, and also on the Top Ten Show uh, doing that. And a massive uh, Beatles fan, the Beatles fan, and uh, I have had uh, albums, cassettes, and CDs and now Blu-rays and 4Ks now of the Beatles with Yellow wow. Submarine. So uh, I have, I'm have i a massive fan, so I'm so excited to talk about this movie. And I'm even more excited to talk about it with you, Steve. And I'm the most excited to talk about it with our guest. And our guest, with no further ado, is one of our favorite guests on the cinephiles of all time. Absolutely. Scott Mance is a critic at large. And we would say that if you could bottle his energy, he could retire for the rest of his life. <laughs> I, you absolutely could. First of all, let's just back up a second. Okay. You guys gave me you guys gave me a dare. You said, we did. okay, okay, Scott Mance, <laughs> every time you've been on the cinephiles, which, by the way, every time I've been on the cinephiles, I've had the best time. Best with a capital B. Thank you, Scott. And you Thank said, you. okay, Scott, the challenge is this. Every time you've been on The Cinephiles, you've talked about science fiction. Your challenge is to come up with a movie for the next time you're on The Cinephiles that is not science fiction. And I said to myself, whoa, that is a – that's heavy, Doc. Whoa, <laughs> Doc, that is heavy. So I kept thinking like, well, I got to make this count. What could I possibly talk about? What could I possibly pitch to Steve and John that will be worthy, worthy of the cinephiles, something that is not science fiction, which is definitely my wheelhouse. And I remember one day it hit me. The Beatles. The Beatles. A Hard Day's Night. A Hard Day's Night. Not just because I love the Beatles as much as I love Star Trek. Which is a bold statement, yeah, as you both statement. know. I could not choose. I love them both equally. It mm. really would be Sophie's choice to have to choose between one of those two. What's funny is those might be my two, too. Oh. See? Yeah. This is why wow. we get along so yeah. well. <laughs> but then it just occurred to me that, that like it hit me like a ton of bricks. A Hard Day's Night, it's not just a Beatles movie. It is, it is the Citizen Kane Ooh. <laughs> of rock musicals. There you go. It is a groundbreaking film. In so many ways that we're going to talk about, mm-hmm. and the 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 period of time that that it captures, and the way that the movie was made, I just thought, wait a minute, there is so much to this movie that it is absolutely worthy of the cinephiles. Yeah. Wow. I, I just got to take a second here because we we with you, our first movie we did was the Citizen Kane of Star Trek films, Wrath of Khan. Wrath of Khan. Our second film we did with you, you said was the Citizen Kane of science fiction, Blade Runner. <laughs> our third film you did with you, you said was the Citizen Kane of Steven Spielberg films, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Right. And then the again, I think it was the Citizen Kane of science fiction film, two thousand one. Well, yeah. yeah. Now we're doing the <laughs> Citizen Kane. Two thousand one, Blade Runner. Yeah. yeah. Now we're doing the Citizen Kane of rock musicals. How many more Citizen Kane? Are there? John and I have already done the original Citizen <laughs> Kane, right, right? Right. So we're definitely. It's going to be now. The challenge gets harder every time you come back to come yeah. up with a new Citizen Kane. There's, there's always a Citizen Kane, like, uh, like, <laughs> like uh, it's a Wonderful Life is the Citizen Kane oh, of Christmas. My all-time Christmas. favorites. Uh, you know the new movie Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. This is what you guys are. T- uh, this is what I keep hearing. It's great. It's the Citizen oh, Kane of Spider-Man movies. <laughs> uh, can't wait. It might be Citizen Kane of animated movies. We'll see. Um. 
let me normally the first question I would ask is how did you first come to the film? But in this case, I would like to ask you, how did you first come to and how did your love grow of the Beatles? Well, see, it's interesting. I kind of went backwards when it came to the Beatles. I was born in 1968, literally the day before the White Album came out. That was November 22nd, 1968. (laughs) So I was born November 21st. Seriously, the day before. So so I'm happy to say I was born when the Beatles were still together. But as I was growing up and I was a kid growing up in Philadelphia during the 70s, the songs that I heard new were Jet, Another day. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Listen to what the man said. Mm-hmm. Band on the run with a little luck. Silly love songs. Let him in. So I was a Wings fan. Live and let die. I grew oh. up. Live and let die. Yeah. I grew up with Wings. I grew up with Paul McCartney and Wings. I had no idea about this guy yeah. until 1976. There was a double, uh, uh, two albums came out called The Beatles Rock and Roll Music. Yeah. And is that the red and the blue covers? No, no, that was 1973. Those oh. two albums came out. Uh, uh, rock and roll music was another sort of cash grab for the Beatles right. because by 1976, people started getting very nostalgic for the Beatles, realizing that they were really the greatest band of all time. And my dad, my father said to me, You know, I know you like wings and everything, but you see, this guy. Yeah. is actually this guy <laughs> pointed to the mop top on the cover of rock and roll music. And, uh, and then my, my mind was kind of blown. I, I liked the Beatles through the years. I liked, she loves you. I want to hold your hand. Can't buy me love. I kind of gravitated to the early Beatles, which makes today's movie perfect. Yeah. But the breakthrough, the breakthrough came in 1987 when I was, oh, uh, in college, a sophomore in college up at Penn state, uh, in, in, uh, center County, Pennsylvania. And uh, it was the 20th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper. Wow. Okay. So I said to my roommate, who is a massive music fan, uh, and all the radio stations were playing it, all the news stations were saying, you know, it was 20 years ago today, really a landmark time for Sgt. Pepper because 20 years is in the song. So what happened was I said to my roommate, Mark Corman, Mark Corman, I always give him credit. (laughs) I said, I don't get it. What is the big deal about Sgt. Pepper? He goes, Mance. Mance, haven't you ever heard this album? And I said, well, I mean, I, I heard with a little help from my friends and Lucy and Sky with Diamonds. He goes, no, 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 no. You got to listen to it start to finish. You got to listen to it start to finish. So that is exactly what I did. But there's a caveat. Yeah. Uh, we went out. We got the CD, which just came out. He got me high as a friggin' kites. <laughs> yes, yeah. And my mind was blown, and literally the very next day. I can't, I can't imagine that first real experience, particularly when you get to Day in the Life. Like, that, that high, really listening to it the first time, that's an amazing thing. Chills. The yeah. chills. And I literally went out the next day, and I got uh, what was at that point the other six Beatles CDs that had been available, which were Please Please Me with the Beatles, A Hard Day's Night, Beatles for Sale, Help, Rubber Soul, and Revolver. Jesus Christ. Wow. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> do, you remember, do you remember how it happened for you? Uh, yeah. I mean, I I was raised on the oldies stations, right. you know, because I grew up in, in, obviously in the 70s and, and 80s. And so for me, it was discovering that through 
all these things were becoming a thing, right, in the 70s. And so discovering the Beatles music then, my father hated the Beatles. My father thought the Beatles brought drugs to America. Like, in his mind, right. he thought they made drugs okay for the overall general populace because of their experimental phase with LSD and all that kind of jazz through the late 70s, 60s. And my father had been growing up in, it had been kind of around D.C. around that time when people were like, walk around DuPont Circle as hippies. and things. So my dad was against it. But right. my mom liked the Beatles and loved the Beatles. And so when I would listen to the Beatles, my dad would leave the room or I would hear the Beatles rather on the oldie station. My dad would. So I didn't like I knew of the Beatles. I understood the Beatles. But it wasn't until I was in high school or middle school that I really started to fall in love with the Beatles. And then I would buy the cassettes because I, I, I got a job when I was, what, 14, 15 years old. Or No, I worked with my dad painting when I was in uh, 12 years old, 13 years old in the summers to kind of like, you know, because I had to do that. That's what you did. Uh, and I made a little bit of money through my dad and I would go to the store and buy the cassettes and I would wake up in the mornings and listen to it with the the old headphones with the right. with the foam on the edges and listen to the Beatles and I got all like scared about like the White Album and did Paul die and I I would get <laughs> yeah. the album and play it backwards and what is cranberry sauce I buried Paul like all like so I became a massive fan of the Beatles in that way because of the conspiracy stuff and then then later you learn to understand the musicianship of the of their music and their uh, uh, um, I don't know they're just their approach to the albums. You know the albums weren't necessarily concept albums. They were just albums. They were back to back incredible music. That by the end of it, you feel like you've gone on a journey with these oh, guys yeah. through every one of these albums. And so uh, to me, that's where it hooked me. And it wasn't until maybe in my twenties that I discovered they made movies. And then <laughs> and then I got into uh, then I saw Hard Day's Night for the first time and Help uh, and Yellow Submarine, which my father hated. My father absolutely hated. Yellow Submarine as well because he went to see it in the theaters thinking it was some kind of animated fun film and it was absolutely not any of that and so it is animated well sure it is and I think it's fun (laughs) sure that's all you know it's I think a lot of people a lot of people you know the 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 one film that is that transcends generations is Yellow Submarine because so many parents will introduce their kids to the Beatles through Yellow Submarine Mm -hmm. more than a heart day's night more than help Definitely more than Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, the less said about that movie, really, <laughs> yeah, yeah. really the best. But I've, I've got and I've got like stacks and stacks of books on the Beatles. That I even yeah. have one that like breaks down uh, every single song and how it went, how they created every single song wow. and the history. The, the I've read books from engineers who've worked on these albums, books from the producers, obviously George Martin, all these books that have been written about the Beatles. I've devoured them. Between the Beatles and the Rat Pack, I probably read about I've. Those are the two groups of people that I've read the most about in my entire yeah. life. Yeah. Wow. yeah, it's funny. So for me, you and I are basically the exact same age. The um, the songs were there. You know what I mean? I think growing up and even today, you couldn't really escape hearing them. So I had heard some of the songs. My first experience is probably Yellow Submarine, yeah. which I remember watching over and over again and thought it was great. But really the moment that, for me, my lo- real love of the- and obsession with the Beatles started is when John Lennon died oh, wow. in 1980. Mm-hmm. Because my sister, who's three and a half years older, started bringing home the albums. And so I saw, you know, the original records and the covers that she got at the used record store. And I started listening to them. And then, as you did in the early 80s, I had my little cassette player. And I held the little cassette player next to the speaker to record all of the albums for my sister. Yeah. And oh, even wow. did the thing where you... Um, 
you know, you have the cassette and you have to flip the cassette over. And so I would try to have it where I would flip it over right in the middle of the song. So there are a lot of songs that I would listen to because the cassette player I, that Walkman had like auto reverse. Yeah, yeah. So I would hear it, it would like get to a point in the song and go, and then start the song kind of in the middle. <laughs> this is the high tech world of audiophileness yes. that I grew up with. And, and, and from that point forward, the slow build of the obsession happened. And, f- you know, where I, if there was a documentary, I was going to watch it. Oh, if yeah. there was a Beatles oh, yeah. movie, I was going to watch it. And in particular, there's the, you know, you talk about your big stack of books. I've now read twice, once because I just loved it. And then also in preparation for this episode that Mark Lewis in all these years. Yeah. That oh, book, that book is phenomenal. Yeah, it's a that is the book. most, and for anyone who's interested in the Beatles, it is like, you know, how much did George pay for this guitar? It is so detailed. Yeah. It's like a thousand pages. But, but that book, it's a thousand pages, and it only covers up until the end of 1962. Yep. <laughs> it's insane. I mean, it's volume one of a three-part series that Mark Lewison is working on. And the name Mark Lewison, when it comes to the Beatles, if there is any book that has his name on it, that is a book you must own. Whether it's the Beatles Live, whether it's the Beatles Recording Sessions, the Beatles Chronicle, the Beatles London. Uh, he wrote uh, uh, in, in collaboration with the with the, the Criterion Collection, he did a great coffee table version yep. uh, a book on A Hard Day's Night mm-hmm. uh, about a year and a half ago. And uh, and yes, all these years. And, and when all these years came out in 2013, I went and got it signed by him and brought my Recording Sessions book too. And I said, when's volume two coming out? Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, you know, maybe like, and next year, yeah. it's uh, about five or six years from now. I went, what? I could be dead by then. <laughs> and and you know that was 2013. It's now 2018. It's so I, I checked recently. Uh, maybe 2020. Man, no, 2020. <laughs> I am, and I'll tell you, I am as excited for Volume Two and Three more so uh, than I am for Game of Thrones. Like, wow. like <laughs> I, I for, for the for the books because my faith in George R. R. Martin delivering a fantastic you know, sixth and seventh book at this point is fairly low, <laughs> but my faith in Mark Lewison is really high. Like, like when you get wait. into, when you get into volume two, you're going to get into the making of the album. Please, please me. You're going to get into, she loves you. You're going to get into hard with the night. Beatles, a hard day's night. You're going to get into everything up to, I'm, I'm assuming that he'll sort of cut it off when the, you know, they stopped touring in the right. August I, that's of what I would 1996, 1966. Yeah. So, and then I'll ask the, the, the follow-up question of course is how'd you come to the movie? Oh, well, the first Beatles movie I ever saw actually was Help. And oh, really? uh, okay. it was after I sort of like, you know, got into the Beatles in the late 80s. Like when I – what that was when, you know, the Sgt. Pepper story, that's when my 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 mind was blown and my whole world was open to the world of the Beatles. That's when I started getting every book I could. Yep. You and I probably have a very, very similar bookshelf. I would imagine that. Um, and, uh, you know, I, just like you, I went through them all. And, uh, and because I got the CDs, which mirror the original – UK versions of the albums, which were they, right. which was how they recorded them. Mm-hmm. That's how I really got into the music. So it was the proper evolution versus the way the American releases butchered them up until Sgt. Pepper. Right. Mm-hmm. But how I got into the movie, so it was you know it was the late eighties, and and uh, 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 a hard day's night and help were both available on VHS. So I figured, well, you got the black and white one. But, ooh, you got the color one. <laughs> I went for the color one. Sure. And I enjoyed it very, very much. Uh, I really enjoyed the musical sequences, like You're Going to Lose That Girl, Ticket to Ride, Another Girl. Yeah. Um, but the, the the actual plot, and I say that 
very loosely, uh, you know, with quotes around it, was uh, very thin. You know, uh, these uh, you know, people are trying to steal Ringo's ring. Um, but what I noticed about the Beatles in that movie is that they didn't really look like they wanted to be there. Right. Ooh. They really didn't. I mean, Ringo was was actually the best uh, actor of them, and and the plot was around him, so he was fine. But I felt like John, Paul, and George were just going through the motions. In help? Or, In help. Yeah, you can but, sense that. But then I, th- I went backwards. Again, always going backwards with them. But yeah. then I found A Hard Day's Night, and that's where I saw the vibrancy. Mm-hmm. That's where this 36 hours in the lives of the Beatles. Yeah. It was... It was where I saw them. They loved being Beatles. They were they were on the run, going from one gig to the next, locked in a car in a room, in a room in a room. You know, we'll get to that dialogue. But it was it was the infectious joy of a hard day's night that I really went. This is the best Beatles movie because when I think of the Beatles, you know that the the beat when you know people will have. Because they went through so many phases, you mm-hmm. got the Sgt. Pepper phase, you got the uh, the later years when they were, uh, let's say, not getting along that great. You know, the couple of them grew very thick beards. I like the Beatles when they are happy-go-lucky, wearing matching suits with matching haircuts, and they were still hungry. They yeah. were still taking over the world, and the music was infectious. And a hard day's night, really, when it comes down to it, it's eighty-seven minutes of pure joy. John, yeah. How did you first come to a hard day's night? <laughs> I, I think if I remember correctly, I came to Hard Day's Night on PBS. I think oh. they were showing it on something, and I just happened to catch it, and I watched it, and I thoroughly enjoyed it, and uh, I was just blown away by because by this point, obviously, they've broken up. John has died. Uh, um, the Yoko Ono stuff. You know, Paul is, has his has his own career. Um, I I I I just forgot you didn't see the vibrancy necessarily in the you know on camera on video or anything like that all contained in something like this and then to watch it the when I watched it the first time I just remember being first of all I had a really hard time understanding the them because their right. accents I wasn't conditioned or trained at that point to necessarily understand what they were talking about or what they meant because there's a lot of slang through the whole movie there's a lot of British slang through the whole movie but the thing that kept me uh, enjoying the film was the musical numbers, the way they came out of nowhere, but how great that music was and to see the joy they had in playing that music. But what I remember about them, which as a young kid really appealed to me because I was always, I had kind of a rebellious nature, was their thumbing of the nose at the establishment. Oh, yeah. It's all yeah. through the movie, right? They, they, their jokes that they make, um, the way they speak to people, the way they don't follow the rules and... And in the end, you just felt such happiness from them that you you couldn't help like you just couldn't help going along with the movie. And so it's one I've always come back to. And it's the day the Criterion one came out, I went and bought it uh, at Barnes and Noble. Yeah. I had to have it and just devoured that thing backwards and forwards. And I'm working my way through Yellow Submarine now because mm. I just recently bought that. But like this is the one that I will always love the most. It's, it's funny. So for me. What's weird about this movie for me is that it's so influential, yeah. and there are so many things that I saw that it influenced before I saw the movie. Yeah, yeah. The biggest one being The Monkees. I oh, watched yeah. The Monkees religiously as a kid. Mm-hmm. It was one of my favorite shows. I love the sense of humor and the silliness, and and also... 
by 1980, when I was getting into the Beatles, MTV existed. Right. And so I had seen tons and tons of music videos by the time maybe mid-80s that I finally watched Hard Day's Night. And so I had two experiences. One is going, oh, well, this is kind of stuff I've seen. You know, so not being blown away the way I should have yeah. and uh, with historical perspective, really kind of looking at the film. And I wasn't the film geek to understand the influences of the French New Wave and all these other things that were happening. And the other big thing was I didn't know the Beatles were funny. Yeah. Because oh, they are funny. Because <laughs> the thing about my I love the music and. But a lot of the songs, particularly by the mid '80s, I loved were the heavy songs, were Eleanor Rigby. Oh, right, and, of course. You know, like all these things. Yeah, so, day so, in the life. Yeah. So seeing them just cut up throughout the film is so, and and it's that charisma and charm of them that just comes across in every single scene. You know, we're celebrating as as we speak the 50th anniversary of the White Album. Right. And uh, you know, going through the deluxe version of the White Album, there's five and a half hours of music on that thing. I mean, it's going to take me uh, months yeah. <laughs> to absorb all of that. Yeah. But one of the things about that uh, about that album that I always felt was uh, was how disconnected the songs were. Mm -hmm. um, it's all over the place stylistically. Uh, it feels like uh, there was no unity, and there wasn't by that point in the group. I mean, they still, you know. They still have moments in the studio where they where they were a band, but out of thirty songs on the album, only sixteen of them feature all four Beatles playing on that song. Right. Whereas if you look at a Hard Day's Night, again, it's the infectious, vibrant joy. So when you look at a Hard Day's Night and you you know you see how tight they are, they they look the same, they dress the same, they got the same you know mop top haircuts. They loved being. Beatles, and you wanted to be one of the Beatles, too. I always say in any film, when you're watching a movie and it looks like the people on the screen are having a good time, you're going to have a good time, too. Absolutely. And that's what's so great about A Heart Day's Night. Well, and, and to your point, one of the things that's so interesting to me is that in 1963, when this process of this movie starts... The Beatles aren't as huge as they're going to be. They haven't gotten there yet. And what the powers that be think is like, oh, here's another you know, flavor of the month. Yeah. They're hot right now. Let's throw a little money towards making this movie um, and assuming that there'll be a flash in the pan and then the movie will come out and they'll capitalize on it. And by then nobody will think of the Beatles again. And that is a thing that they've done with a lot of bands up to that point. Uh, and so they bring in uh, Richard Lester uh, to direct the film and he's an American director. And why they think it's going to work with the Beatles is that he's come to direct television in England and in particular directed episodes of the goons, the goons. Yeah. And the goons, we the last time we talked about the goons was way back, uh, or the first time we talked about it was talking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail, <laughs> because this is one of the most influential radio shows first and later a television show um, with Peter Sellers that just changed the way comedy was. And what's so interesting is that the, in addition to Monty Python being huge fans of the goons, all of the Beatles were a huge fan of the goons. Anyone who liked comedy would get home to listen to the goons. And George Martin recorded Peter Sellers and a bunch of the other goons throughout. Uh, so there's already a connection there. You know, it's interesting you point it out that way. Because when, when this whole process started coming together in the fall of 1963, let's see, what the Beatles hadn't even come out yet. That didn't come out until November 22nd, 1963, the day that JFK was assassinated. But... So Walter Shenson was a producer, an expatriate producer living, you know, living in the UK. And when 
the Beatles first met Richard Lester on October 16, 1963, after their show at the London Playhouse Theater. October of 1963, again, what the Beatles had not come out yet. The biggest song they had at that point was She Loves You. Even though they were they were huge in the UK, they hadn't gone to America yet. Yep. They were not, you know, m- most of the world. They were still not well known. No one could have imagined that when this movie finally opened on July sixth, nineteen sixty four, that they were going to be the biggest thing since Oxygen. Yeah. <laughs> no one could have predicted that. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing comparable. I mean, by the time they come to America, which is a few months later, in I'm sure you have the date. February 7th. <laughs> 1964. I knew I could count on you. That 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 suddenly there's this like, oh, this 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 is we don't understand what this is. It's bigger than anybody thought. And they had put 200,000 pounds, which is, you know, a small budget to make the movie, and they'd set it up and go, "Oh, wait, we have something else that we have to deal with." And they go and get uh, Alan Owen as the screenwriter, and the idea they have as they're watching what's happening with the Beatles is like Maybe you should just go spend some time with them uh, and see what their lives are actually like, which is what he does. Yeah. Um, and, he find, and he finds out that his lives are pretty much what we see in the movie. Yeah. Well, the, the thing about uh, Sanity of it all, yeah. you know, Alan Owen. So he spent three days on the road with the Beatles picking up their, you know, you talk about the language, how it was a little hard to understand. Right. The Scouse. It was the Scouse. Scouse, yeah, Scouse the, 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 the slang of it. Um, and some of it, you know, Actually, was lifted from the Beatles themselves. Some of it, Alan Owen made on his own. But uh, two hundred thousand pounds was what United Artists, the uh, distributor and the producer of the film, that's how much they ponied up. So two hundred thousand pounds came up to about five hundred and sixty thousand dollars for for the movie. That's American dollars, and they went black and white, not color, because of an artistic choice, but just because it was cheaper. The other thing, the reason, the reason. They made this movie was not to make a Beatles movie. The reason United Artists went forward on a hard day's night was because they wanted to cash in on a soundtrack. They wanted to cash in on the music. It was not about creating uh, a groundbreaking film that would be uh, dissected, you know, whatever, you know, 54 years later. Yeah. Uh, It was to you know, put out a soundtrack album that was separate from what EMI and what Capital Eventual would be doing. Um, and, and what's so interesting to me, and this is even throughout Mark Lewison's book, is that people continually tried to put the Beatles in a box and say, you are supposed to be like this, and they continually failed. The Beatles is so unique. They're so different. They behave so differently from anyone else. And one of the things is, is that it used to be you know, that Elvis is going to make a movie or Pat Boone's going to make a movie, and we're going to put them in a box and make a vehicle for them, and they're going to do what we say. Beatles don't do what they say. Mm-hmm. The Beatles say, this is who we are, and you're going to make this around who we are. They were so strong in their vision and their identity, which was so unique. And finally, they went, well, let's just do exactly what your lives are like. And they structure the movie around running from the fans and their senses of humor mm-hmm. and the experiences they have being these huge – they just make it about the Beatles. I mean, that, that's what, – what more do you want? Get, first of all, you're going to give the fans what they want. You're gonna you're going to solidify the personalities of the Beatles, which yeah. is what that movie did 
for better or worse, because when they grew past that, they didn't like being kept in that box that you're talking about, right. Steve. Mm-hmm. The they, box they created. They, they created yeah. themselves, right? But you know what this movie essentially did was, you know, John was the uh, the smart one, mm-hmm. uh, Paul was the cute one, George was the quiet one, and Ringo was Ringo. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but uh, but this movie, uh, you know, it, you you follow them around for 36 hours, and then it ends with a Beatles concert, and. Yeah. It is like that's all you need from these guys. And it's so different than what you'd seen before with the Elvis movies, right? The Elvis movies were about these like flimsy plots and right. he finds a way to do songs. You know, Eddie Murphy has a great bit about that in the 80s talking about, we got to win this race. You know, <laughs> you know, he just made songs out of anything. Whereas this was a little more of a... I guess because you could tell the difference in the managers, right? Colonel Tom Parker is very, he was very stringent, very, very much all over micromanaging Elvis to pieces. Whereas Brian Epstein was really smart in how he managed them because he got them all on board. Because in the Cavern Club, they are rebels. They are raucous rebels doing, going to Hamburg at young ages, doing things, being exposed to drugs at young ages, drinking all that kind of stuff, messing around with women at young ages. But by the time Epstein gets a hold of them and really hones them, that's when they're wearing like the same suits. They got the same haircuts. All they clean them up. They clean them up. And so the package is not necessarily of their choosing, but they're certainly complicit in the package. And in the end, what I love about the movie is that we get this sample of them, but it still leads to what you want at the end, which is them all coming together and singing the songs. That's the reason you pay the ticket to walk through the door. With the Elvis movies, you never got an Elvis concert at the end of his movies. It was no. never about Elvis unless you got to the documentary, This Is Elvis. Then that's something else. But like with the Beatles, that was so different about their rock movie. I don't think I think this is what makes Hard Day's Night the most unique movie about oh starring a band ever made. Uh, this side of head with the monkeys. Right. This is the most unique movie that and the most satisfying, I would say, of right. any movie done by any band. Well, and the thing that I think that's so interesting is that in watching this and in thinking about this, and this is something that's going to come up multiple times, is that we've talked about uh, movies like The Graduate, where there is the you see the crack between the old school studio system oh, yeah, yeah. and the new. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. I think this is the first. I think because what mm. was not understood when the, this process begins that the Beatles create is the power of youth culture yeah is that is that they are actually the deciders Mm -hmm. of what is important culturally not the rich old men that run all the systems and that there is no way to fight against it and actually thematically throughout this movie that's something we're gonna see yeah you know um speaking of it Shall we begin a hard day's night? Let's do it. Before what, what, it, while we're beginning a hard day's night, yes, it is worth pointing out. It is worth pointing out that this movie was made. You know, the first half of 1964. Like, okay, so in January of 64, they're in Paris, bombing, oh, yeah. because they were playing to mostly teenage boys versus young girls, right. And then in February, they came to America. And then in March and April, they made their movie. And uh, before and after the making of this movie, they released uh, in July of 1964, they released the only album made up entirely of Lennon McCartney original songs. 13 songs, 10 of them written by John, uh, three of them written by Paul. The soundtrack, the songs... For on, a, on the Hard Day's Night album. It's the only album that there's no covers, there's no Harris songs, there's no Ringo songs. 
the all songs by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Mm. That's what that soundtrack album says. And they they, bre- they wrote them all really fast, is my yeah, understanding. Yeah, they yeah. sure did. Yeah, we'll get into that. Um, <laughs> so the film, I got to take a moment to talk about the opening chord of a hard day's night, which is. Well, that's the thing. It's like seven different things at once, is my understanding. It is a G7 suspended fourth. Wow. That is what that opening chord is. That opening chord is one of the most famous opening chords of any song in music history. Mm-hmm. Ching! You hear that? You know you're going to launch into one of the Beatles' best-known songs and definitely the Beatles' best movie. Have you seen um, – there's a, a video of them deconstructing this? So I think it's actually more than that chord. But there's a video, and I'll post it on Facebook when we mm. put this out, where it's a guy, and they're playing like seven different things at once to finally construct. It's really, really interesting to watch them construct. the. And by the end, they play them all at once, and you go, that was it. But, but you see, I, as a guitar player... Oh, you play guitar? I play guitar. I and the uh, the opening chord that I always play, I mean, I could be wrong. You could be right. Uh, I can't wait to see what you post on Facebook. I'll show it to you. But the, <laughs> the, the chord that I always play to get into A Hard Day's Night, it's always a G7 suspended All fourth. Right. And everyone listening... Uh, uh, everyone listening to the cinephiles right now, uh, if I am right on the G7 suspended fourth, hit me up on Twitter at Movie Mance and let me know. Well, there you go. I like it. <laughs> this show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Hello, Cinephiles fans. You know, we all kind of walk around with these stressors, big, small, medium in our lives that are triggered sometimes by frustrations at work or frustrations at our job or just frustrations overall about our life. Because sometimes you know this, if you compare, you despair and you just want to live a life that's a little bit more clean and accepting of yourself and a little more open to receiving positive messages for yourself so you can have that life that you want to live and have that great work-life balance. And it's not always easy. And for me, for years and years, I thought all of this stress, all of this hardship, I had to just carry on my own, that this is what it meant to be a man. And it was finally getting therapy where I realized like, oh, I don't have to carry that stuff. There's a place where I can unburden myself and actually get advice and guidance about how to deal with it better in the future. Yeah, Steve, you and I have spoken very proudly about how therapy has helped both of both of us deal with our stressors in our lives. And if any of you are listening to us who are thinking of starting therapy, well, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and it's suited to your schedule. All you have to do is to fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if things aren't working out, which I think is a great benefit. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Cinephiles today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S. And we just jump right into this movie and the Beatles are getting chased by some girls. It's been a hard. This and that with their lives were life. And that mm-hmm. that opening uh, scene was actually spoofed in the first Austin Powers movie, oh. uh, yeah, 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 right. you know, which was great. But when you see John and Paul and George running down the street and George trips over and falls and he rips his suit, that really happened. Yeah, it looks yeah. real. That was a, it was it was such a like a, a again, the beginning of the vibrancy. 
Well, and John's reaction to it is so great. Like his just full laughter at what's happening. And I think I, I kind of think if that moment didn't happen, this movie would not have gone in as good a direction because there's something so alive about what's going on. Yeah. Well, when the, this was the first time uh, that that, you know, up to, up to that point in the Beatles career that that the that they were they were asked to record a song to order. Walter Shenson and and uh, Richard Lester said we need a song for this movie, and they didn't even have a title yet. The original title for the film, the working title for the film, was Beatlemania. Hmm. And you know, I mean, that could have worked, sure. But they, of course, they came up with something very different thanks to Ringo. Ringo had one of his Ringoisms, and uh, at the end of filming one day, he said, "Wow, that was a hard day." And then he walked outside, saw it was night, and he said, well, make that a hard day's night. <laughs> and from there, you know, John and Paul, like, were in a race to to come up to write the song. I mean, you know, by that point, they were starting to write songs separately. And John was the winner. And on April 13th, April 13th, which was the day that, uh, that the Beatles filmed the scene in the bathtub, mm-hmm. where John oh. was in the bathtub mm-hmm. with a with a with a submarine, yeah. I might add. Yeah. It was April thirteenth, and then on uh, April sixteenth, nineteen sixty four, a hard day's night was recorded in nine takes at EMI Studios, as we 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 call it Abbey Road these days. Mm-hmm. And it was the ninth and final take, which was only the fifth complete run through of the song that was chosen as the best. Wow, that's amazing. That's just getting started, buddy yeah, boy. That's amazing. <laughs> And one of the other things about this is that it's so influenced by the French New Wave. And this is Mm. one of those interesting things, which is I think the Beatles were a conduit frequently to take different artistic ideas like French fashion and things from Germany when their time in Hamburg and American things and retranslate them in a way that made them uh, acceptable to this huge, huge pop culture audience. Because we see all these jump cuts and these wipes and handheld camera things, all of which you would have seen with Godard and Truffaut, which popular, you know, in the popular world in the U.S., they hadn't really been watching these movies. Mm-hmm. Well, the, uh, they filmed the opening scene at the train station uh, with, with the 500 screaming fans at Marylebone train station in central London. And, uh, you know, for most of this, most of the scene, you see, you see John, Paul, uh, John, George and Ringo. Well, where's Paul? Where's mm-hmm. Paul? And then finally, you see, you see him put the newspaper down. He's got the fake goatee on and he's watching his grandfather. His, and, and Paul's grandfather's name is Johnny McCartney, mm-hmm. played by Wilfred Brambell from Steptoe and Son. And interesting that, that Paul's grandfather in the film was in reality only 30 years older than Paul. <laughs> wow. That is funny. Uh, well, let's get to that because they finally get to the train and we end up in a train compartment. And what is the first thing we hear as we get in there? Oh, uh, hey, who's a little old man? <laughs> hey, pardon me for asking, but who's that little old man? Uh, what little old man? That little old man. Oh, that one, that's my grandfather. Your grandfather? Yeah. That's not your grandfather. It is, you know. But I've seen your grandfather. He lives in your house. Oh, that's my other grandfather, but he's my grandfather as well. How do you reckon that one out? Well, everyone's entitled to two, aren't they? And it's my other one. And it's so interesting, the choice to have this guy, uh, what is it, Willard Bramble? Mm-hmm. Um, Wilford Brambell. Wilford Brambell. Uh, be such a huge part, and he is so funny throughout uh, the film. This is such a well-cast film all around. And you need this, right? I mean, the Beatles are very natural in the film, which is incredible. Right. But 
you got these great care these great actors surrounding them the whole time and that's really what elevates the film as well their performances playing off the Beatles it's so much fun and then like the rapid fire dialogue where they're playing mm-hmm. off each other it's just brilliant hello grandfather hello he can talk then can he of course he can talk he's a human being isn't he well, if it's your grandfather, who knows? <laughs> yeah, that's another one. Simple dialogue like this. They're so funny. They have yeah. such good timing together. And and I really want, my understanding is that's what it was like talking to the Beatles. Oh, yeah. And, and there's stories of what it was like to hang out with the Marx Brothers. And I really think that there's a similarity of like the just these incredibly smart people that really are very very happy to mess with you yeah and and you know that that you're not going to quite figure out who's joking or who said what or and you're just going to spin around until you're finally dizzy and fall <laughs> down and that's what it sounds like hanging out with the beatles was like morning lads oh, you've all got here now look i've had a marvelous idea just for once let's all try to behave like ordinary respectable citizens Let's not cause any trouble, pull any strokes, or do anything I'm going to be sorry for. Especially tomorrow in that television theater. Because... Are you listening to me, Lennon? You're a swine. Any George? You're a swine. Thanks. Hey! Who's that little old man? What, what's so interesting as we're learning about this grandfather is then in walks the manager, uh, whose name is Shake, I think? Is that his name? Oh, yeah, Norman Shake. Shake. Yeah, yeah. Norm... Norman, Norman Shake, Shake were based on uh, on Neil Aspinall and uh, Mal Evans, who were their real oh, roadies. Yeah. Oh, they're real roadies. And they come in, and we have the beginning of an ongoing joke about why are you so tall? Yeah. Uh, taller than yeah. you. Oh, um, my grandpa's been at you. He, 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 he's he's can't help it, Norm. I'm just taller <laughs> than you are. Don't uh, rub it in. Yeah, it was Norm Rossington was uh, Norm, and... Uh, uh, John Junkin was shake. We're talking a bit before about about the establishment, about how they how they snub the establishment. Yeah. Right there in that opening scene in the train compartment with the actor Richard Vernon, who is the second guy that comes in. Yeah, well, he, yeah, he sits down with yeah. them, right, and uh, you know he wants to shut the window. Oh, he want to have it open. Do you mind if we have it open? Yes, I do. Yeah, but there are four of us, and we'd like it open. Not if it's all the same to you. That is, it isn't. I travel on this train regularly, twice a week. So I suppose I have some rights. So have we. And Richard Vernon was seen in uh, the, the uh, James Bond movie Goldfinger. Mm-hmm. And he was also in the film Gandhi. And uh, he represents the establishment uh, that right then and there that the Beatles are thumbing their, thumb, yeah. thumbing their noses. Yeah. Yeah. Then we'll have that thing off as well. Thank you. Well, an elementary knowledge of the Railway Act would tell you that I'm perfectly within my rights. Yeah, but we want to hear it. There's more of us than you. We're a community, a majority vote up the workers and all that stuff. Then I suggest you take that damn thing into the corridor. Or some other part of the train. Where you obviously belong. Give us a kiss. Look, mister, we pay for our seats too, you know. I travel on this train regularly, twice a week. Knock it off, Paul. You can't win with his sword. After all, it's his train, isn't it, mister? And don't take that turn with me, young man. I fought the war for your sword. I bet you saw you won. Well, and it's so much that it's the World War II generation yeah. that's like, we won the war. This is how things are supposed to be. Yeah. We're supposed to be in charge. And of course, with their generation, you know, kids were supposed to be seen and not heard. And he I said, I bet you saw, I, I fought the war for your sort. I bet you goes, saw you won. I bet you saw you won. <laughs> <laughs> but also, uh, you know, this, this train sequence, it's, it's very surreal 
because yep. you know you have the scene where where you know Richard Vernon is inside the train compartment, and on the outside you see the Beatles running alongside of the train. It's very surreal. Uh, and, and again, plays into just sort of the avant-garde nature of the film. This sequence is, is also notable because this was where we see Patty Boyd for the first time. Patty Boyd was, was one of the, one of the, uh, the schoolgirls right. who actually— Oh, it, right! Yes! What, what happens with Patty Boyd there, John? Right! Doesn't, doesn't she end up with—wait, doesn't she end up with Paul or something she like that? She ends up being George. George Harrison's wife. Right, which is what, who Eric Clapton writes, uh, You Layla. Look Beautiful Layla. Tonight. Uh-huh. And Layla, yeah, about her. Yeah, well, there you go! Fascinating, that's right. Because then there's this moment where Ringo's a little sad because he doesn't think that his, that Paul's grandfather likes him. Yeah. Because uh, of his nose. Because of his nose. Because of your nose, you know. <laughs> um, and I love, I love their little bits of weird Beatles language, some of which I think comes from John, because John had this thing about inventing new words and new mm-hmm. sounds. He was really fascinated by... You know, like he loved Lewis Carroll and loved the yeah. Jabberwocky and sort of that playfulness. And there's a thing that George says as Ringo's sad about uh, the grandfather not liking him. George says, you got an inferiority complex. <laughs> yeah, no, that's why I play the drums. Me active compensates me factor. Which is just such, it's like, wait, what did you say exactly? Yeah. Um, and, and then later on, there's some woman in a compartment that's kind of flirting with Ringo. And then there's this question of whether or not he should go in. Right. And you see, and yeah. Goes, oh, she'll just reject she'll just me. Just reject me. Yeah. <laughs> Ringo really is so fun to watch in these movies. He's the star of this movie. You know, we, I we don't care what anybody here, says. He's the star of this movie. We could sit here and just recite the dialogue in that accent and yeah. and and keep each other entertained. Yes. <laughs> so, so by the way, when they when they got the movie to the U.S., the U.S. immediately said, "Let's dub these guys with American accents." Of course, they did. oh, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, no way. Yeah, to which Paul's response is, "Look, if we can understand fucking cowboy dialogue, you can understand Liverpool dialect." <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> oh, I love that Paul said That's that. Fair. Yeah. But then you have the sequence in the train compartment where uh, Paul's grandfather, after causing some trouble, they kind of put him in a, in a compartment. And so Paul goes in to keep him company, and then the other guys go in to keep him company. And before you know it, out of nowhere, these instruments appear, you hear the <laughs> harmonica, yeah. and suddenly the Beatles are playing one of my all-time favorite Beatles songs, John. Uh, wait, wait, wait uh... I should have known better. Should have known better, right? right I should have right. known better. Was recorded in Studio Two on February twenty fifth and twenty sixth in twenty two takes, and it was take nine that was the best. And by the way, so I should have known better was recorded on February twenty fifth and twenty sixth. This was just two days after they returned from their triumphant trip to the United States oh, wow. where they conquered America playing to 73 million people on the Ed Sullivan show on February 9th, 1964, <laughs> where they played all my loving till there was you. I want to hold your hand. I want to, I saw her standing there and she loves you. Um, what's so interesting to me. So first of all, the thing, one of the most important things about this film is this is the origin of the music video. This is, is really yeah. where the music video is invented. And what's so interesting is that they found, cause before it was like, we, had musicals and a character would burst in a song that's not exactly what's happening here what's happening here is almost in every single song we have a different way to get into it and a different way that it's handled and in this one we're in this compartment and they start off and they're playing cards and there's a moment where Ringo is dealing the cards and he's dealing them on the beat Mm -hmm. and then there's a moment you kind of turn and then John has a harmonica 
and then suddenly they have instruments and there's no transition it just organically becomes a music video It's like magic, you know. It's, it's like not magic. like it's not like a, a an Elvis movie where you know he just you know is is crooning. And by the way, you know I I like the earlier Elvis movies. Yes. You know, I, I mean, sure. Jailhouse Rock is great. Love That's my you. favorite. I King think Creole, so. King Creole, and I, and I love just because of the uh, uh, just how. Um, Fun it is. I love Viva mm-hmm. Las Vegas. No, yeah, you know, Viva Las Vegas is fantastic. I have no that's memory the of pinnacle. That yeah, was that to me. Was, that's the pinnacle of Elvis. That was that was it until like uh, the '68 comeback special, and yes. then you know, right. uh, this is Elvis. Um, so uh, we have our kind of musical number, and then we are pulling into the train station. Oh, the train station, yeah, yeah, and and you know, just to give more credit to uh, to uh, Norman Rossington uh, as uh, as Norm and John Junkin as Shake. I mean, they were sort of loosely based on Nal Evans and Neil Aspinall, who were their trusted aides and roadies. Uh, neither one of them, uh, Norm or Shake, are really based on Brian Epstein, who was yeah. a very, 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 very different kind of manager, um, but. But it's it's uh, I love seeing Norm sort of, you know, uh, try in his best way possible to exert his control over the group and mm-hmm. fail miserably every time. Yeah. Um, and in this case, they decide they come up with this plan of we're going to run through. We know there are going to be girls there. Mm-hmm. So we're going to run through the train station. There's going to be essentially a blockade of cars. We're going to go into one set of cars, run to the other side, get in the next set of cars, hopefully before the girls get to them, which doesn't quite succeed. No. <laughs> and yet I love, again, watching the the laughter and the fun of the Beatles in this car that's getting attacked by uh, screaming fans. Because it's still fun at this point. Yeah. Right? It's, it's still fun. Right. They weren't starts to turn yet. when yeah. they can't hear themselves in concert. Right. As they get. And this is only two years away. Yeah. 1966, when they stopped touring. And it's because they just can't hear themselves anymore. Well, they, they no experiment more. In the, yeah. Constantly. Yeah. Exactly. They want to experiment Every more in the studio. The thing the Beatles did. By the time that thing was released, they were past it. Yeah. When A Hard Day's Night came out, when the album came out, when the when the movie came out in the summer of 64, they were, they were already prepping for their follow-up album, Beatles for Sale. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing is, you know, on a, on a Hard Day's Night, you had the vibrancy of I Should Have Known Better, Can't Buy Me Love, Tell Me Why. And then on Beatles for, Beatles for Sale, which which is generally seen as their least creative album, but then you have a the, the you know compared to the the upbeat infectious joy of a hard day's night, you have the first three songs on Beatles for Sale. Their next album are No Reply, I'm a Loser, mm-hmm. Babies in Black. Mm-hmm. Here comes the depth. Yep. Here yep. comes the depth. And I would argue their lyrics were already trending that way, even in. Right, I should have known better. Yeah, that's also kind of a sad uh, approach to the world of love. Even though this is vibrant, mm-hmm. I should have known better uh, is a song that also kind of makes you. You look at all these songs and you wonder, oh, okay, they've always had this darkness to them. They just put a happier spin on the yeah, they did. on the music. Well, but the lyrics no were quite- always about broken hearts and not being good enough and being cheated on and all those kinds like past masters has all kinds of stuff from the early days where you hear how much like they, some of their lyrics are a little like you're like well, whoa there, there, yeah. there's one song in particular you know i'd rather see you dead little girl than yeah, see yeah. you with another man see you with another man that yeah. is that is some i mean well and you know 
John Lennon is a dark dude. Yeah. I mean, he might have become a the the symbol of the peace movement in all these ways, but that is a dark, angry guy. Well, he's talked so much talk, history. Uh, 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 over the years uh, and, and, you know, up until his, his final days about how the song Help, while written for a movie, was a cry yeah. for help. I yeah. mean, the lyrics are right there. But like you said, John, it's the spin. Yeah. It's a pop song. It's, it's a great a pop, pop song. song. Right. Yeah. But, you know, help me if you can. I'm feeling down. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm, I'm a loser is, is more of a, a cry for help in some ways mm-hmm. than help is. Um, but uh, still, by this point, like you said, John, this this is the point where they still were having fun. Like yeah. They're in the limo, and you know the girls are throwing themselves like like flies on a windshield, <laughs> you know, and they're just laughing. They're just having a good time with it. Yeah. Continuity wise, I thought it was funny how uh, before John got into the limo, he was wearing a, a jacket and a, a shirt and a tie, and in the limo, he's wearing a black turtleneck. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> but hey, you know, it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, it's funny. So this. And, of course, this mirrors life in so many ways for them. So in addition, they're always being chased by screaming fans. But some of the things they had to do just on this movie is that they realized they couldn't pick the Beatles up at at a train station. Even when they kept the schedule 100% secret, no one knows we're going to be. We're going to go to this train station at 6 a.m., there's 300 fans there. Yeah. It's Somehow like the, the internet. Getting, yeah. And then and then they said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to charter a special train to pick them up in a field in the middle of nowhere. Right. And slowly but surely, there's hundreds of fans there. They just <laughs> couldn't escape them. And and by the way, Brit Rail, they gave him the tra- all the trains for 250 pounds. Oh, and, is that right? And Beatles photos. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Brit Rail was they were sort of in a downturn at this point and they said, "You know what?" Maybe it'll be good to be sort of associated with this hip group, and that's the and they thought it was worth it. But this, so they're they're in the hotel. They got some downtime before they have to go to the to the uh, the, the theater mm-hmm. to meet their the, the the producer there, who's really a character. We'll get into that. Yeah. But you know, you got the Beatles just kind of hanging out in the room. They're just chilling. They're relaxing. You know, and then uh, Norman Shay come in with like fan mail, and uh, you know they give one to Ringo. Oh, oh poor Ringo. Oh, poor Ringo. <laughs> this will keep you busy, John says, and then. Uh, and then Shay comes in with a, you know, a whole pile full of mail. Oh, the Faringo. Um, and, uh, you know, from start to finish, Paul's grandfather is just, you know, stirring the pot, causing yeah. trouble. He wants to go. Uh, he wants to go out, and the Beatles want to go out. They don't want to sign uh, and, and send out fan mail. fan mail all night. They want to the... go out and party. Right. right. You know, they're kids. They want to party. So, uh, so the grandfather takes an invitation that was meant for Ringo, and he goes to uh, Le Cirque. Right. Well, after after the Beatles have already uh, snuck out because they want to go party, mm-hmm. and the and and we see by the way, there's this moment when the butler comes in wearing a nice tuxedo. <laughs> it gets a look from Grandpa. Um, one thing, by the way, uh, one of the problems the Beatles had with the movie in making the movie was they were night owls because they're rock and roll musicians. Right, right, right. So they're used to being up till four or five in the morning. The movie starts shooting at six in the morning. <laughs> so you, there are sort of two things that could have happened. One is the Beatles decide to get nice long nights of sleep in order to be well rested and prepared to get up at six in the morning. No. Or they might just be staying up all night and maybe they have some extra stimulants to help yeah. them do it. And that's <laughs> actually what happened. Yeah, this was the pill movie. 
Oh, the, yeah. This was the movie they oh, made, yeah. Popping the Pills. It was the next movie they made, Smoking the Pot. Yeah. <laughs> well, and again, we won't talk about what they were doing for Magical Mystery Tour. Oh, no, no, no. That, yeah. that, that's, a, that's another. But, but I just I love the, you know, when you, when you go back and forth between, you see the Beatles at a club dancing to their own music, which I always thought was a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> you know, do you really want to dance to your own music? Don't you want to hear something different? But yes. then you see the grandfather <laughs> at the, uh, the poker, you know, the, the, uh, the card game. And uh, there's this really uh, hot blonde leaning over grandfather's shoulder, and he looks at her breasts, and he says, I'll bet you're a great swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a funny movie. It's yeah. a very funny movie. you do not movie. need to love the Beatles to get yeah. the humor of this movie. That's a very good point. <laughs> well, and he's he's playing Baccarat. And I was thinking about it. It's like, so this is 64. Mate, right. You know, is that... Uh, Dr. Neil, I think, came out in 62 from Russia with Love 63, mm -hmm. is that this is totally playing off of James Bond uh, and having this, you know, you're in the casino, in the tuxedo, totally. And, of course, what does he say when he thinks he has a good hand? Bingo. <laughs> um, and and at, the two, at the clubs where they're dancing, we have um, I Want to Be Your Man. And then the second one is All My Lovin' is playing. Ringo's doing some fun dance moves. Hey, Don't Bother Me is also playing. Yeah, I think that because yeah, we go back and forth three times. Yeah, uh -huh. Again, that's another darker song. Don't yeah. Bother Me, yeah, right? That's for George's lyrics. first song that he ever wrote. With oh, his really? Own oh, I didn't don't know Don't Bother that. Me was his first song that oh, he ever wrote. Go away, don't bother me. Don't yeah. bother me. You know, but so then so then Norman Shea come and they, you know, they... They take them away. Yeah, they call them back. Yeah. Back to the hotel. You got stuff yep. to write. You could see that they're. You could see. I love Paul. You don't see what he says, but you can tell you, he leans into Norm and he's just kind of like, you know, I'm gonna like cripple you. Or yeah, so what like he said. Yeah, you can yep. tell. There's yeah, he's like pissed. Yeah, yeah, he was really pissed. And we go back to the hotel room, and what do we find? But that butler who's been hiding <laughs> in the closet the whole time in his <laughs> underwear because Grandpa stole his tux. I, I love that whole sequence. They open the door, they see him, and they close the door, and then they keep opening <laughs> yeah. the door. I was like, there's a weird old man in there. Yeah, there's a what's a uh, there's a man. In the cupboard. He's a man oh, in the cupboard. He's right, you know. <laughs> and we realize that what's happened, and we head off to Le Cirque. Yeah, trying to find the grandfather. <laughs> um, and there's this moment, you know, we come back into the casino, and at this point, everyone in the casino thinks that grandpa must be filthy rich. Um, and the Beatles show up, and first Norman Shake try to get in. Well, they can't they can't be let in. They let the Beatles in. Yeah, of and course. I love I love Norm's line to get himself in. He says, I'm with them. I'm a Ringo's sister. <laughs> so they they get in and uh they 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 try to take grandfather away and and uh, they he winds up owing money um but then they 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 go back to the hotel yep and this is presumably the next day yeah yep. and uh john is in the bathtub fooling around goofing off speaking german and what is he playing with a submarine submarine playing a submarine yeah now wonder, maybe uh I wonder, I wonder if we saw the color footage, if it would have been yellow. Would it have been yellow? <laughs> well, I, I always thought, oh, gee, a submarine. But actually, Yellow Submarine was written by Paul. So oh, there you uh, maybe go. Paul saw him and went, hmm, a submarine. <laughs> I'm to keep that one But I always love that scene. You know, uh, you know George is showing uh, 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 Shake how to shave on the mirror, not on his actual face. It's such a weird – because you're watching. He's talking. They're talking about shaving, and then he – Puts shaving cream on a mirror around his face. Yeah, it's really funny. And then you know the car, the car is there, and and uh, John is still in the bathtub, and and uh, Norm empties the water with all the suds, you know, from the bubble bath, <laughs> and John is gone. John is gone. And he picks up the submarine, like, what the hell happened? And John comes into the bathroom and goes, "What are you messing around with that boat for? 
There's a car waiting. Come on. <laughs> well, and this is some of the surreal elements of the sense of humor. Yeah. And I really think they're influenced by the goons. I think Monty Python is influenced by Hard Day's Night. Oh, I would, I would absolutely go with that. So it's much really of the sense of humor and the silliness and the surrealness is is very much a Monty Python sense of humor. Yeah, people don't understand how vibrant the comedy scene was in Britain during that time. Late oh, yeah. You had Peter Cook, Dudley Moore, all that kind of stuff going on at the same time, where that gentleman who plays Paul's grandfather, what he's coming out of his troupe of comedians. There was so much going on during that time. And you see, like you were saying, the, the influence of the goons, all this through, how it all plays out into the 70s. There's a very vibrant comedy scene. And there should be more done or talked about or documentary explored about that because some very funny stuff that influenced the, the comedians right. we see now, right. we loved before, rather, in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, Absolutely. What, one thing, just on the filmmaking tip about uh, the shaving cream on the mirror. So this is something that people don't think about, which is that you have to have the shaving cream go around the guy's face for the camera's perspective so that we, the audience, can see shaving cream go around his face. Sure. George, if he put the shaving cream where he sees the guy's face, it would be six inches off of his face right. for the camera's oh. perspective because George is standing in a different place from the camera. Mm -hmm. So what you have to do is teach George where to put it in a place that isn't where the guy's face right. and have it line up perfectly. It's actually not that not that easy to do. I never thought about that because you know you're just thinking, oh, you know, he framed it around around Shake's face. Yeah, but he. He had to frame it around Shake's face from the point of view of the camera, not the from camera. his own point of view. Yeah, a oh, weird thing to have okay. to do. That's, listen, this is what Cinephiles is <laughs> all about. Apparently. <laughs> Let's head off to a press conference. Ah, uh, the uh, yeah. press conference. This I is one of my favorite scenes of the movie. I just because this is the Beatles, and having watched actual press conferences with yeah. the Beatles, this is the kind of things that they would say. And a lot of this is their lines. Tell me, uh, how did you find America? Turn left to Greenland. Has success changed your life? Yes. I'd like to keep Britain tidy. Are you a mod or a rocker? Um, no, I'm a mocker. When you watch the first press conference they did when they came to the United States. It's a great mm. press conference. It's such a great press conference. Uh, can you sing for us? No! <laughs> Sorry. Next question. We can sing. No, we need money first. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what about the allegation that you're a bunch of British Elvis Presleys? It's not That's true. So it's true. not true. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, uh, uh, they say, are you going to get a haircut while you're here? And George goes, I had one yesterday. <laughs> and they're all like, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're so funny. And what's so great they're so loose they're mm -hmm. so here's all of this attention coming at them and for whatever reason whatever they went through in hamburg whatever they went through building the band has given them this confidence to kind of take it all in stride yeah. and maybe they weren't internally but it seems that way and their sense of humor and the way they could respond to all this stuff is so funny and for for a three-year period between 1963 and 1966 when they were touring they got asked the same questions over and over and over and over again. And, and when you watch the press conferences that you've seen after after that USA conference and after the press conference or the, the reporters that you see in A Hard Day's Night, you could see in, in documentary footage that they were over it. Yeah. yeah. Really. Another someone else is gonna ask, what are you gonna do when the bubble bursts? Right. You know, oh, when are you gonna get a haircut? I mean, all the same stupid questions that they got asked. But for the purposes of the movie, it's funny how, you know, oh, what's the what do you call the hairstyle? Arthur. <laughs> I mean, all those are just funny one-liners. You a rocker or a mocker? And there's that one reporter I'm a mocker. I'm a mocker. That the female reporter who says to John, have you any hobbies? And John takes her pen and writes on a piece of paper, 
and he shows it to her. And you see this look on her face like she's like shocked. Yeah. What did he write? The question was, do you have any hobbies? John's answer, which we never saw, was tits. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Well, and, you know, true. (laughs) From what I've heard about John Lennon, I think that was true. Um, And finally, and of course, at the beginning, they were trying to get to the booze, trying to get to some food. And finally, they just find a way to get the hell out. They carry Ringo out the door. (laughs) And the reporters don't even notice when they finally escape. We head into the theater where we find the manager and grandpa. And now we actually find out what the plot, I guess, of this movie is, (laughs) which is there's going to be a show that we're here to put on some kind of live concert on TV. And they end up on the stage and ring. Someone's touching Ringo's drums, which he doesn't like. Well, I love that reaction by Ringo. (laughs) So he's like legitimately territorial about those drums. And he's like, before the guy gets mad. Before that happens, you have one of the best entrances, I think, in 1960s movies. The TV producer. Oh, the TV yeah. producer enters the scene and talk about a scene stealer. Victor, Victor Spinetti yep. is absolutely hilarious. Now, look, if you think I'm unsuitable, let's have it out in the open. I can't stand these backstage politics. And John, John really is like, you like really going and getting into it. Aren't you turning to black and white the situation somewhat? Well, quite honestly, I wasn't expecting a musical arranger to question my ability picture wise. I could listen to him for hours. I'm quite happy to be replaced. He's a typical book passer. I won an award. A likely story. It's on the wall in my office. <laughs> and it's just Victor Spinetti is hilarious. I think he's still alive because uh, during the 50th anniversary of Yellow uh, or what, the release of Yellow Submarine that uh, Sirius XM, the Beatles station, did, they had Spinetti on there playing his oh. favorite songs and he talked about uh working with the beatles in between each of those songs i, I remember i stayed in my car an extra half an hour oh, wow. because i don't have serious except in the house so i stayed in my car an extra half an hour because i didn't i would i was afraid that i would miss it again if i, I do that left too. the car and I so yeah too. yeah if i'm if i'm going somewhere and they're playing like they have a guest dj yeah. or they're playing like right. you know uh the, the george harrison stuff and, right and like i'll get to where i was going to go and I don't have Sirius in my house or my, mm-hmm. my apartment. Yep. And I just saw I'll sit in my car for like 20 minutes just yeah. to listen to the end of the program. That's great. I'm just like you, brother. Yeah. Yep. Well, and this thing with the, again, this is him with the director is the Beatles against authority yep. figures. And what's so interesting is they're not fighting, fighting directly at the authority figures. Mm-hmm. It's same with the guy in the train compartment is they're kind of moving around it in this way of like, no, no, I, you're not going to draw me into a fight. We don't care about you. Right. We think you're funny. Mm-hmm. We're playing they're with you. They're making fun of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're, they're, yeah. It's so brilliant. Um, so Ringo, as you say, he's very upset about <laughs> about the drums. And uh, and Paul comes over to make him feel a little better. Actually, John went over. Yeah, John oh, John over. comes over. Yeah. Um, it was If I Fell. If I fell in love with you, would you promise to be true and help me? understand because i've been in love before and i found that love was more than just holding hands if i give if i fell was recorded emi studios abbey road studios number two on february 27 1964 the beatles recorded 15 takes of if i fell and they saved the best for last last take that was the last take Nice. I love this song. This is one of my quietly favorite. Beats. I love it too. It's yeah, one of my it's favorite. It's a beautiful too. song. 
And, and what's interesting is, again, so we had Hard Day's Night, which played at the beginning, which was just playing over their action. We have the way they ease into the song when they're playing in the compartment on the train. We have the three songs that play at the club, which they're dancing to. And now we have more like a musical way to get into yeah. it where we, we kind of walk right into doing the song. And it's it's a, it's absolutely organic. Totally organic. They, they are rehearsing. They're tuning up their instruments. It's just a rehearsal. So what better way to perform a song than to be like, this is the plot we're rehearsing for our show yeah. that we're going to be performing at the end of the movie. Right. Um, the the director is done with them. He walks off muttering. And then we run into, I love, backstage, Leslie Jackson and his 10 disappearing doves. <laughs> <laughs> and we get just a great comedy bit, which Grandpa walks up and like, is really excited to meet him and pats him on the arm and feathers shoot out of his right. sleeves and very quietly Leslie Jackson crosses out the ten <laughs> and switches it to his nine Aww. disappearing doves. It's all your father, the it's empire. All your father. If you're anything like him, you're all right. <laughs> the look on his face and the, the feathers come out of his sleeve. It's awesome. And of course, the Beatles are very important that they stay at the theater. They don't go anywhere else. They got rehearsals coming up. They got makeup coming up. And, of course, the Beatles are going to follow those instructions perfectly. Right. They are not going to go anywhere. Wrong. They bust out the door, down the fire escape, into Can't Buy Me Love. Buy me love. Can't buy me love. Love. Can't buy me love. I'll buy you a diamond ring, my friend, if I make you feel all right. I'll get you anything, my friend, if it makes you feel all right. Cause I don't care too much for money, but money can buy me love. There's actually a, a really good spoof of this in the Ruddles movie. Sure. All you need is cash. I haven't seen the where, Ruddles in a where long they're, time. They're going up and down the stairs, and, you know, they, it just keeps going where they're on the stairs. And the song is like more than halfway through, and they're, they're still on the stairs going yeah. around. But back to a hard day's night. Yeah. So, so now this is, you know, you talk about Steve. You talk about a hard day's night. About this launching MTV. Right. It was this was the moment right here. I think so. Too. This this th two and a half minute sequence that that is uh, cut. Uh, it's heavily edited. Yeah. The 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 film stock is sped up. Uh, close ups, backups, handheld helicopter shots. The helicopter Helpo shots. Huge right. helicopter shot. And this is all to Can't Buy Me Love, which. Which pre-release, before the song even came out, this was after the U.S. visit, and it was announced that Can't Buy Me Love would be the, uh, would be the, uh, the Beatles' next single. So pre-sales of this next single topped one million before wow. the song was even officially released. Wow, that's amazing. Now, here's the other thing about Can't Buy Me Love. Now, no other group, no other performer is synonymous with where they recorded their music than the Beatles. 98% of their stuff was recorded at EMI Studios, Abbey Road Studios, St. John's Wood. Just take the dude, the Jubilee line <laughs> and get off at St. John's Wood. It's three blocks away. Now, when the Beatles recorded Can't Buy Me Love, it was not at Abbey Road Studios. Oh, really? The Beatles recorded Can't Buy Me Love when they were in Paris in wow. January oh, of what? 1964. And they were in Paris for a 19-day stint at the Olympia Theater, where, like I mentioned before, they, they bombed. They were playing the boys who did not scream for them. Their equipment kept malfunctioning. 
But a lot of good things happened when the Beatles were in Paris. First thing is this is where they were when they found out that I Want to Hold Your Hand was number one in the USA. And that's where they were going in three weeks. And there's that famous shot, John, I know you've seen this picture Mm -hmm. of the pillow fight. Yes. Yeah, the pillow fight. Uh, you know, that was staged by a photographer named Harry Benson. Uh, he wanted to sort of capitalize on the excitement of when the Beatles found out that I Want to Hold Your Hand was number one. But it was at the uh, EMI Pathé Marconi Studios on uh, January 29th. The Beatles recorded three songs. One was a German version of I Want to Hold Your Hand. Yep. The other was a German version of She Loves You. The third song was Can't Buy Me Love. Now, Can't Buy Me Love really evolved. There's a version of Can't Buy Me Love that's on the Beatles Anthology Volume 1 that is very, very different from the finished version. Can't buy me love, love, can't buy me love. Now, you would think because the song is so fundamentally different from the final take that it took quite some time. But the fact is, in just one hour at the studio in Paris, the Beatles recorded four takes of Can't Buy Me Love that evolved from this, uh, this version that, that is on the anthology to the final version that we hear, uh, the fourth take that you know, I could listen to over and over and over and over again. It's great. It's sort of to me. It's like Hard Day's Night in the sense that it hits so hard just with that first. It, you know, it, it's so joyful. It's so powerful right at the beginning, and it works so perfectly with what's happening at this moment in the movie. We've been enclosed the whole time. We've been in train compartments. We've been in dark clubs. We've been in the hotel room. We've been on this little stage with this more intimate song, and now it just bursts out with all this energy, all the way, the different choices and shot angles, the handheld, the freeze frame jumps that they do, the shot of the feet. Oh, the I feet love those. Yeah. Of, uh, yeah. of the feet, which, by the way, what happened there, there, there are these three feet, uh, three pairs of shoes moving around, and one pair of shoes in the foreground, and uh, and it's, uh, John wasn't there that day, so he's shooting the other three Beatles, and those feet in the foreground, are those are supposed to be John's. Um, <laughs> well, but the other thing that happened that day, John John had to leave the, leave the set early, you know, because he was being honored at a function for his uh, first book in his own right. Mm-hmm. So when you hear uh, the Beatles, uh, and when they're, when they're leaving the field, because, you know, that guy got pissed off and he says, I hope you realize this is p- private property. Sorry I ruined your field, mister. Sorry I ruined your field, mister. Was sent by George. And you see George, Paul, and Ringo leave the field. The line was intended for John, but just given to George because John had already been gone. Right. And that sequence, that, that vibrant, joyous, infectiously uh, uh, exhilarating moment in film, uh, by any measure, was actually shot two in two different times, six weeks apart. Oh, really? First at the Gatwick Airport, and then second at Isleworth. Mm. But the way it was shot and cut together, it looked like it was done oh, yeah, in yeah. one afternoon. Yeah. Um, back at the at the theater, uh, Shake is angry because he yes. can't find them. And we, this is where we really get the sense, and we kind of heard it throughout the film, the real conflict is between him and John. Yeah, Shake and John. And it seems like that's correct. Well, because John... <laughs> 
you know, is in his essence the de facto leader of the Beatles. Because yeah. Paul's not going to be the one until later, right? At the beginning, it's John. They're taking the no cue from question John. that it's John's John the, the oldest. John's yeah. the rebel. John's the deeper one who's experienced the death of his mom, living with his aunt, all the kind of stuff. John has the darkness to him that young kids gravitate to and would. And young kids, uh, especially people who had like, yeah, Ringo had difficult upbringing, a little bit with his illness. George, not so much. Paul, not so much. Although he did lose his mom at a young age, his dad was a very stable guy and, and gave him his love of music. But John was the one that had the darkness, the edge, the rebellious nature, the authenticity. And so they followed him initially. So naturally, he would be the one having the issue with Shake, who's trying to keep them all in a box and controlled. Well, and more than anyone, John is the one who wants to mess with authority. Exactly. I mean, more. Than, I mean, right. Ringo's not going to mess with no, authority. No, 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 no. And, yeah. and also, at this point in, in early 1964, uh, John was actually seen as the leader of the group for mm -hmm. a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, when the Hard Day's Night album finally came out in the summer, the, the British version of it, not the uh, actual soundtrack of it, out of the 13 Lennon-McCartney originals, John wrote 10 of them, oh, wow. 10 yep. of them. John and Paul wrote all those songs at a time when they conquered America, made a movie, and then actually went overseas to like, you know, Denmark and went to Australia and, 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 and amazingly put out uh, uh, what I consider to be my very favorite Beatles album, which is A Hard Day's Night. Mm -hmm. But the other... Uh, so this is your favorite album? My favorite album is A Hard Day's Night. Wow. You know, like, I mean, wow. people go, oh, I love Rubber Soul because it was when they got into the right. artistic stuff. I love Revolver because it's better than Sgt. Pepper. I love the White Album because it's all over the place. I love Side 2 of Abbey Road. My favorite Beatles album is A Hard Day's Night. Wow. I, it's, okay. it's, it's, it's 29 minutes of pure joy. Sure. No, I get that. Uh, we're back in the theater, and mm -hmm. we come in through sort of the basement, and John runs into, uh, I think it's Anna Quayle. I love this uh, scene. Yeah. Hello. Hello. Oh, wait a minute. Don't no, I'm not. Oh, you are. I'm not. Oh, you are. I know you are. I'm not, no. You look just like him. Do I? You're the first one that said that ever. Yes, you do. Look. No, my eyes are lighter. All right, Noddy. This scene is so funny. Mm -hmm. Thinks she knows. Um, and I think John does great John's with this bit of dialogue. In this scene. Yeah. It's so I mean, it's just it's this weird, surreal, funny, odd, well written bit of dialogue. Oh, you know him better though. I do not. He's only a casual acquaintance. That's what you say. What have you heard? It's all over the place. Is it? It's crazy. Mm, but I wouldn't have it. I stuck up for you. I knew I could rely on you. Thanks. You don't look like him at all. And he says she looks more like him than I do. And he like pulls his hat over his, <laughs> over, his a, over his eyes. That is a funny scene. It's the only time anyone gets the best of John in the whole film. Yeah, yeah, true. It's the only time. That's a great point. Right. She she gets that moment with him. You don't look anything like him at all. Yeah. And he yeah, just yeah, has the glasses down yeah. and everything. And then he has that moment where he tries to push back, but it's not as good as how she just left him. And uh, now you got George's moment. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're heading. They were supposed to go into rehearsal, except George walks into this office. Oh, yeah, by mistake. the shirt. By yeah. mistake. And, and there's a woman there who says. Oh, well, there you are. Oh, sorry. You must have made a mistake. No, you haven't. You're just late. Oh. Actually, I think it would be very pleased with you. Really? Yes, you're quite a feather in the cap. Um, and they send him into this meeting with this man. And, marketing man. And marketing man. And his, it's a long scene. Um, and it is so funny. It's really funny. Now, Marketing Man is played by Kenneth High, and uh, he has been, he's a, a 
was a very established uh, actor. I mean, I, I recognize him from uh, an episode of The Twilight Zone, uh, but he mm. was he was a an established actor to the point where he did his part in A Hard Day's Night, but asked for his name to be left off the credits because he thought that making a Beatles movie would hurt his career. <laughs> Meanwhile, to this day, other than the Twilight Zone episode, this is what you remember. This is where most people <laughs> yeah. know him from. <laughs> and there's this moment, you know, he, he says something and George responds, I'm sorry, there must be some must be a misunderstanding. And and the and the response is you don't have to do the anecdotal glottal sp- stop because he thinks he's faking the accent and yeah. faking the voice in order to get the part. Hey, you could be replaced, <laughs> cheeky baby. <laughs> um I and, don't care. And they ends up they want him to be a model for some kind of shirt. Yeah, the shirt. Uh, go on a commercial. Show him the shirts, Adrian. Now, you'll like these. You'll really dig them, that tab and all the other pimply hyperboles. But George, they show him these shirts and he doesn't like them. I wouldn't be seeing Dad in them. The dead grotty. Grotty? Yeah, grotesque. Make a note of that word and give it to Susan. Now, Alan Owen claimed he heard the word used in Liverpool, but the Beatles never heard that word before and were convinced that Alan Owen made it up. <laughs> well, and this is this thing of like what this scene is about. And again, it's a lot of what the whole movie is about mm-hmm. is the rapidly changing landscape of popular culture right. and the older generation trying to control that. And of course, they can't. Yeah, trying to you make know. money off of it, trying to manipulate it. Yeah. Well, I think if you look at uh, the way popular culture worked previous to this mm. is that the older generation told the younger generation what to like. Right. And you look at it continuing to this day, the younger generation is telling the older generation what to do. And the older generation is frankly scared of like, how are we going to get <laughs> yeah. all of the 20 year olds or 15 year olds to buy our whatever the thing is, you know, and they're rushing to try to please them as opposed to this marketing guy who is going, well, we've hired this woman to be a trendsetter and we've scheduled when the next trend is going to change right. and we're all on top of this it's rather touching really here's this kid trying to give me his utterly valueless opinion when i know for a fact that within a month he'll be suffering from a violent inferiority complex and loss of status because he isn't wearing one of these nasty things of course they're grotty you wretched nit that's why they were designed but that's what you'll want i won't you can be replaced chicky baby i don't care once again this is another this is just a small little scene but it decorates the film with this subversiveness, right? This is, the once again, uh, George, who is the quiet one, right. uh, uh, thumbing his nose at the authority of fashion, at the authority of this establishment of fashion. The Beatles loved poking holes in these establishment things. She's a trendsetter. It's her profession. She's a drag, a well-known drag. We turn the sound down on her and say rude things. Get him out of here. Have I said something you miss? Get him out. He's blocking the program's image. Sorry about the shirt. Get him out. This this discussion, I have to say that you know, pointing out the uh, the guy on the train and uh, and and pointing out marketing man, uh, I I have a much deeper appreciation now for what among the other things what this movie represents, which is a changing of the guard. Yeah, it's more subtle than than other films might depict mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the generation gap, but this movie. In its own way, I am now just seeing from this conversation with you guys yeah. that that it wasn't just thirty six hours in the lives of the Beatles. It was it was the the new generation uh, exerting their influence and and establishing their own identity. You know, I think this is a young director in Leicester who has sure. something to say as well and finds 
perfect union with the Beatles who enjoy doing that. So at the time in the 60s, this is a perfect time for it to come out. Just as the counterculture is about to really explode in this idea of questioning, don't trust anyone over 30, this becomes, as you go into the tail end of the 60s, the, the mantra. So. One of the things that's really interesting about that uh, uh, Lewison book is uh, that when they first go to record, and this is something I never understood until reading this book, is that the Beatles, in a lot of ways, are the first band. Because everything previous to that time was Alex Haley and the Comets. Mm-hmm. It was it was uh, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Oh, there yeah. was a lead singer paired with musicians. And when they went in to record, the studio would choose what song they were going to do. You're going to do this. And they would choose the musicians to play with them. And the Beatles come in and they try to make it a John Lennon band, right? You know, and yeah, these are, and, the moon talks. and then we're going to replace. Mm-hmm. Oh, we're you know they obviously wanted to get rid of Pete Best, but they're like they weren't sure if Paul McCartney was going to stay. But they, but even even in the very beginning, though, you're you're right, and that was where the studio, where the uh, the label uh, was uh, George Martin, you know, yeah. because he was mm-hmm. producing them. You know, he wanted them to record. Uh, he didn't feel that their original material was up was up to par, right? So he said, record the song called uh, "How Do You Do It." Right, and that's that'll be your first single. Yeah, and uh, the Beatles, uh, you know, they reluctantly did, and uh, you know, "Love Me Do" had already come out, and uh, and then uh, they 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 recorded it's on it's on the Beatles anthology. You could hear it, but uh, they were insistent on releasing their own their own compositions. So after "Love Me Do," they sped up "Please Please Me," and that was their first number one. Right. And they and of course, they own their own publishing rights. In fact, they have a company that owns their own publishing Mm. rights. And so suddenly they're in charge of what's happening. And you see the same thing in this in this movie of why would we want the older generation to be in charge? Obviously, the Beatles know what's best. Pete Best. Yeah, uh, Pete Best. Um, there's a German opera singer who's uh, rehearsing, and Grandpa's down below the stage signing Beatles photos, forging them, yeah, forging them, oh, and a buck. somehow he accidentally hits a button and he gets lifted right up onto the stage. It's funny. It's in funny. the middle of their yeah. performance, yep. and that the producer uh, Victor Spinetti is about to have a conniption. Yep. <laughs> like I think Victor Spinetti. Like, he's a scene stealer in this film. Get him out. (laughs) It's hilarious. Uh, Once again, we're with our our manager, and we're just trying to keep these people in the room. Stop being told that I can't help it, Norm. I'm just talking (laughs) you all. There's a guy who comes out with measuring tape and pulls it wide, and Uh, John Lennon cuts it and says, I now declare this bridge open. Improvised. By oh, the way, oh really? And that tailor, by the way, that tailor who was holding the uh, the, the tape, tape measure, that is actually the Beatles' tailor. Ah, yep. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, that's interesting. Um, uh, because the Beatles change fashion as well. Yes, they yeah. tr- oh, multiple yeah. times, oh, multiple yeah. times. And I'm I'm be reading into it, but the cutting of the tape is. Liverpool's where they built a lot of ships back then. Oh. So seeing something like that, of the course. joke would have made a lot sure. of sense for Liverpool people. We're getting ready for a rehearsal. Everyone's worried that the Beatles are not going to show up to the rehearsal. Um, and then we get a cue and we go right into And I Love Her. Music. I give her all my love. That's all I do. Too. I love 
friend. I love her. This is Paul's like, I would say, I mean, you know, Can't Buy Me Loves the Fun song, but this is this is more uh, in tune. Even though Paul has had some some amazing rockers over the years, Long Tall Sally, She's a Woman, obviously uh, Helter Skelter, yeah. uh, you know, but but he was always sort of seen as the ballad guy. And this is one of his very, very best songs that, that Paul wrote. One of three songs that Paul wrote for the Hard Day's Night album, this Can't Buy Me Love, and uh, one of my all-time favorites, Things We Said Today. Yeah. Yeah. And I love her. Since uh, I knew you were going to ask, Steve. Uh, <laughs> when did they record this, and what take did they use? They recorded the song, Steve, in 21 takes on February wow. 25th, 26th, and 27th. The 21st and final take on February 22nd was the one they went with. Wow. All right, then. Uh, it's a great song. I it mean, I can imagine that if I were a young woman in 1964 and Paul sang this to me, I would swoon. Yeah. Now, in while the Beatles were filming A Hard Day's Night in March and April of 1964, on April 4th, 1964, something happened that had never happened before and has not happened since and will never, ever, ever happen again in the history of humanity. Wow. On April 4th, 1964, the Beatles held the top five positions on the Billboard wow. Hot 100 wow. chart. It was uh, Can't Buy Me Love. I mean, I know Can't Buy Me Love was number one because the song had just come out. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was uh, on various labels because they had Capital, they had VJ, they had Swan. So it was uh, it was like Can't Buy Me Love, I Want to Hold Your Hand, She Loves You, Love Me Do, and uh, oh, what was the other one? Uh, I think it was Twist and Shout. Um, but uh, yeah, the top five positions. That is amazing. Yep, amazing. Um, and, and we continue to have different ways that we're filming each of these sort of music numbers. And this one is filmed primarily through the monitors. You know, so we're actually seeing through the way you would see them in a TV shoot. And there is a very important moment in film history in this thing, which is that one of the cameras accidentally flashes one of the lights and gets a huge flare mm -hmm. across the screen on Paul and they leave it in. Yep. Up to that point, flares like that were considered a big mistake. Wow. And they go, this flare looks really cool. Yeah. And that is, as far as I know, the first major use of an on-screen flare. J.J. Abrams I was, must have been watching exactly. that I just want to say, you're going to say that, weren't you? J.J. Abrams was bored. <laughs> we head off to the makeup room. Um, and there's a lot of silliness. Oh, jo yeah, jo a lot of chaos yeah. in the makeup room because you got you got the Beatles in there, you got the uh, the, the the ballroom dancers in there, mm -hmm. you got the German singers in there, and they all want to get made up first. Yep. Um, and uh, and then you've got Paul's grandfather who utters the classic line, which was lifted from real life, where the grandfather says, "I've been in a train and a room and a car and a room and a room and a room," <laughs> and in actuality. Uh, John Lennon was saying that line, you know, about his experiences in Beatlemania, and Alan Owen just said, gold. That's and awesome. lifted it right there. Yep. Um, and there's Paul doing Shakespeare. There's Ringo wearing silly wigs. There's all sorts of just plain silliness going on. And then we're on back on stage, and there's a dancer, and in come uh, the Beatles and do a little dancing with them on okay. The choreographer, they come in, they come mm -hmm. into a choreographed sort of musical version of Happy Just to Dance with you. Mm -hmm. So then John just uh, sort of like, you know, says, why don't we just do the show right here? Yeah. <laughs> and then they launch into Happy Just to Dance with You, yeah. which is sung by George, but written by John and uh, uh, recorded 
in four takes on wow. March 1st in Studio 2. The rhythm track was take two. The vocal track was take four. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it's so funny to think about where Beatles recording went later on, where they're there for weeks and months with all of, you know, you think about what they're doing on Sgt. Mm -hmm. Pepper and all the ridiculous layers and reversing and pitch shifting and all the stuff they're doing. And here they're doing something in four takes. But, but yeah, I was going to say, like, what, like one thing I noticed on the uh, uh, the White Album, the, the deluxe version, there's a song that, that George recorded for the White Album that was not used called Not Guilty. Mm -hmm. And I'm looking at the liner notes and they did 102 versions. Wow. Of not guilty, and yet, oh, uh, let's just use to take four of happy just to dance with you, or take four of uh, of uh, can't buy me love. <laughs> right? <laughs> Who needs a hundred and two takes? Sometimes I wonder if the laborious nature of the later albums ha added too much to the friction of the group. You know, That's because there's point. you're exploring so many different sounds, so you're in the studio longer with the same guys all day doing all the things that you're doing and then you bring in of course the elements of Yoko and all the all the other outside and not just her but all the other outside elements coming in all of that must have eventually just been such a there, hard thing for them to get over there is really so much that led to their dissolution uh you know starting with you know they stopped touring and even though they hated touring, even yeah. though they were sick of just not being heard and just the craziness of it, the fact that they were touring like really sort of kept their unity as a band. Right. And after they sort of because it was them against the, the world type of thing, yeah, as opposed to against each other. Yeah. And and the first album they recorded after that, where they've really retreated to the studio, was really the last time they did work together as a real band, which was Sgt. Pepper. Mm -hmm. And then after that, you know, they they got into the friction because the you know John started bringing Yoko into the studio, but you know there was also the fact that brian epstein had died right. and now it's like who's going to lead us you know brian dealt with a lot of the business decisions the beatles took care of the music and they were already strung out on drugs and when paul tried to be bossy the other three guys resented it and then they started apple apple was a mess apple was losing money and then alan klein comes in to sort of take over as, as their manager it was just one bad thing after another and uh it's no wonder that that the beatles eventually broke up well and to me it's so i mean to think about they're a band for 10 years ish yeah. you know and they produce more music in those 10 years and, and it's funny i i um i think when when all of them showed up on itunes i decided to just like i'm just gonna start on the first album yeah. and i'm gonna listen chronologically through all of them and it's so crazy to hear how they evolve mm -hmm. in little steps little steps and that huge shift mm -hmm. and then different and then that they go off by the time you get in the white album they're going off in every different direction mm -hmm. oh. you know because george has gone off to india and there's all just this stuff and you go like i don't know they packed 50 years of musical evolution into 10 and we're I don't know that who could survive that intensity. It, you know? a, when you look That's a good at intensity, yeah. When you look at the Beatles in a hard day's night, that the 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 pictures that were taken on the set, you know, what maybe even a little bit before, like when they came, you know, that that early fall nineteen sixty four look, you know, where they they were still having fun, they still yeah. liked being Beatles, and yet, you know, four years later. They're recording the White Album, and the pictures taken in July of 1968 when they went around London during their mad day out, and the images of John with the long hair and the glasses, and uh, and George Ringo with the mustache, and and this was just four years later, but it looked like it was 20 years yeah. later. Yeah, yeah. They aged 
fast yeah. Yeah. in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We head off to the green room, and Grandpa's there. And there's this moment where he watches a guy uh, with a bandage, and he pours some ketchup on the bandage. <laughs> um, and then we end up with Ringo reading a book. What's the book? I don't know. What is the book? It is Anatomy of a Murder. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, and Grandpa. Jimmy Stewart movie, yes? Yes, it yes, is. Yes. Uh, Otto Preminger. Yes. Wow. Schmodown, son. Shoot, that is impressive. That was beyond me. Um, uh, and Grandpa is giving, talking some smack to Ringo because he's got to go out what he calls parading. Parading? Parading the streets. Trailing your coat. Bowling along. Living. Well, I am living. You? Living? When was the last time you gave a girl a pink-edged daisy? When did you last embarrass a Sheila with your cool appraising stare? He's stirring the pot. He is stirring the pot in a big way. And I love where, where as he's... And Ringo's like, no, you learn all sorts of things from books. Books are great. And then, um, and then uh, I love where he goes... And where'd they be without the steady support of your drumbeat? That's what I'd like to know. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, it suddenly clicks. And what's it all come to in the end? Yeah, what's in it for me? A book. Yeah, a blooming book. When you could be out there betraying a rich American widow or sipping palm wine in Tahiti before you're too old like me. And Grandpa convinces Ringo to go out parading. So he goes out parading. And uh, what happens next, John? <laughs> well, uh, well, he goes on a, a bunch of adventures here, you yep. know, playing with the, t- the messing with the kids and uh, taking pictures and uh, getting yelled at, walking by the river, all kinds of things he gets involved in. And then there's a madcap chase scene with the cops, well, which is a lot of fun. Yes, let's, de- yeah, we yeah. will get to that in a moment. Yeah. The, uh, the song is This Boy. Instrumental uh, version. Instrumental yeah. version yeah. conducted by George Martin yeah. the orchestra. Yep. Yeah. Because he composed the score based on all these Beatles songs. Oh, I love this boy. This yeah. boy is a great song. This boy. boy that yeah. boy. Yeah. And it is this is where you really see like Ringo is the star. He's the star of the movie. He is so compelling to watch him do all the things. And I love that he goes into some weird store and gets this hat. And this coat, mm-hmm. uh, and then he runs into a woman, and she does not recognize him, mm-hmm. and that is the best thing in the world to him. Yeah. He's free. He's free. Yeah, but it's a short-lived moment of freedom because it just like there's this bad energy that starts to turn around him. He goes into this bar, the bar, and, yeah. and, and you know he he's he uh, you know wants to get a drink, and he puts his change down on these guys that are playing some game. Yep. Yeah. Knocks over, uh, puts his glass down, and the glass breaks while they're in the middle of playing their game. And he gets a, a, a sandwich that it's very very stale. Yeah. And then he he uh, walks outside. He tries kicks, to play darts. Yep. And he he, hits, he yeah. plays darts and he hits the bird. Yeah, so he's like, okay, bird. I know when I'm not wanted. And he walks out and then the, he he like kicks some clothes and his cop starts going after him. Yeah. But one of the funniest scenes in the movie happens uh, when he's trying to be a good Samaritan. And it's a oh, scene it's that, that, that no matter how many times I watch this movie, <laughs> I laugh out loud during the scene. Ringo takes off this uh, this this long jacket that he had bought to try and uh, you know camouflage himself and to 
to put it over mud holes while a woman oh, walks yeah, over that's them. Right. Yeah. So, you know, he puts his jacket down while a woman can walk and walk over a puddle, a muddy puddle, without getting her shoes dirty. Mm-hmm. Then he picks Very up the jacket and he picks it, he puts it across another mud mud hole with, with a puddle so she can walk over that without getting her shoes dirty. So it's always on the third thing that something goes yeah. wrong. So he takes his jacket, puts it across another hole, but there's not a puddle. It's a hole. Mm-hmm. And she walks over the jacket and she sinks into the hole. <laughs> and then he's just like, holy shit. And he like tries to get out of there and the cop grabs him. Yep. And that, that leads to your scene, John. Mm-hmm. Um, one more moment I want to talk about, which is that he's with this kid. Yep. And there's just a lovely scene oh, with him and the scene. kid and the camera. And I really think this is, again, it's French New Wave. Mm-hmm. Like this is, could great very place. much be out of yeah. the French New yeah. Wave. Jules and Jim or 400 yeah. Blows, very yeah. much similar, yeah. It's just kind of very real and out in the world in a very non Hollywoodish sort of way, and it's kind of a lovely scene. And the you know the kid goes like, you know, I'm a deserter, and Ringo says, I'm a deserter too, you know. You know, watching the film and watching Help, the follow up, it's pretty obvious that Ringo was the best talented actor, and, and you know Ringo, you know, went on to have an you know an acting career. I mean, he made some movies like The Magic Christian, and uh, you know, of course, Caveman. He made Caveman. <laughs> <laughs> That's the one that everybody knows the most. Look, I mean, it's a great move for him. He it's, met Barbara yeah. Bach. Yep. You know, Quaid's in this thing. You can't but argue that. Richard Lester actually remarked to the Beatles as actors. George, Richard Lester actually felt that George was the most effective actor, and Richard Lester said that Paul tried too hard. <laughs> Not surprised. Uh, Not surprised. <laughs> um, of course, back at the theater, they're starting to freak out yeah. because. First, they've got this final rehearsal coming up. They did a lot of rehearsals at this theater, and they're going, you know, where's Ringo? There's one great moment where uh, Grandpa reveals that he, he's the one who encouraged Ringo to go, and he says uh, it'll be wine, women, and song when he gets the taste for it, and that's when they cut to Ringo at a sandwich. <laughs> you know, it's a great little cut. And, of course, when uh, the rest of the Beatles find out that Ringo's gone, it seems like the right thing to do is to go out and go looking for him. So Ringo's been grabbed by the cops. The other Beatles are trying to find Ringo. And what's Grandpa doing? He's down selling those fake yeah, those, photographs. Those, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what happens is the fans of the Beatles are swamping Grandpa for the photos, and the cops grab him and take him away. So, so, so Ring, so Ringo and Grandpa end up at the same same train station, the same uh, police station. Right. Uh, well, it's so interesting to me, by the way, is they're treating Ringo badly. Yeah. Because they're calling him, they call him a little savage, and Ringo's going, oh, you got to talk to my uh, solicitor, and then Grandpa gets brought in, um, and Grandpa is treating the police like they're the man, like yeah. they're evil, and they're trying to keep him down, and the police are being completely nice to Grandpa. They were t- yeah, you're gonna- you know, you want a cup of tea? He's like, a nation wants again. <laughs> yeah. A nation wants again. <laughs> He's like, take me in the room, do your little business. I know what you're doing there. And I love the guy who is the chief of police behind yeah, the desk. He's like a nice guy. What a chill, totally and nice then kid. authentically English-looking guy, yeah. you know, with the crest, the, the ridges in his head, and the mustache, and the glasses. It's brilliant. Um, and he stands up. They, he sits down next to Ringo on the on the bench, and he asks Ringo, "Have they roughed you up yet?" Yeah. And I love his description. Oh, they're a desperate crew of drippings, and their fists like matured hams for pounding poor defenseless lads like you. <laughs> it's just so funny. Um, and Ringo's response is, "They seem all right to me." And of course, that's when we find out that the reason they got grabbed Grandpa was just to protect him because he was right. getting swamped by all the girls. 
Um, back at the theater, we got a half hour less to go. Uh, Grandpa's sitting there with Ringo, complaining about the cops, and then he decides to make a break for it. He runs out, into which the cops go, uh, you forgot your photographs. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The cops are trying to help him. They're yeah. trying to help him. Back at the theater, there's a bunch of cops surrounding the theater. How is Grandpa going to get in? He gets some kids uses them to distract the cop they put a bucket over his head and he runs into the theater chased by the cops and you know what i thought of as i watched these cops chasing this little old man around benny, benny hill. hill yep oh is that right oh yeah i didn't totally I didn't say me. yeah you're absolutely right that it's sense hill. of the ridiculous silliness of sure. chasing people around sometimes in fast motion mm-hmm. i totally wanted here but wait wait how's it Yakety sacks. Mm-hmm. That's totally what I thought. And of course, that he tells the rest of the Beatles that the police have Ringo. Yeah. Can't buy me love. Can't buy me love. But but we've only got 20 minutes. Can't buy me love. <laughs> so of course, you know, why play Can't Buy Me Love once when you can play it twice? And right. this is really the Keystone Cops. It's so yeah. funny. Full on. It's so funny when you see the, the cops running after the Beatles and and then the Beatles come back. They go back into the, the, the police station and John's all out of breath and he just catches his breath mm-hmm. and then he runs out again and then there's more there's more cops going after the Beatles. And this guy it's, trying to steal a car. It's yeah. so fun. That guy it's just so gives up fun. after a while. It's so the third fun. time he's like, I'm just gonna steal it. <laughs> Oh, it's great. Well, there's also a moment where the guy who's trying to steal the car, a cop gets in the car and says, follow oh, that's that right. car, follow which to me is totally like a Fletch kind of moment. <laughs> um, totally. um, the Citizen Kane of comedy. <laughs> wait a minute. No, wait a minute. Uh, wait just a minute. <laughs> we, we, we might have to find the Citizen Kane of comedy, though. Maybe that's the... It's airplane. <laughs> okay, Good so... There it, is. there it is. So here's the thing. We talked about doing airplane yeah, at the end did. of Wrath of Khan. That's right. Here's why I got nervous about it, and I will leave it to you. Is my worry about doing airplane is it's just going to be? Then this line is so funny, and then this line is so funny, yeah. and then this that doesn't line is sound so like funny. a terrible episode to me, Steve. <laughs> All right, what's d- the problem? <laughs> okay, done. What's your done. problem, Steve? <laughs> All right, <laughs> Jesus, shake. All right, uh, airplane is next. The Citizen Kane of comedy. Striker, striker. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I picked the last day to stop sniffing glue. Oh, it's getting thicker. Leon's, Leon's getting, getting larger. <laughs> that movie's so funny. <laughs> but we're not in airplane. We're back at the theater. <laughs> How do we go from a hard day's night to airplane? Back to a hard day's That's night. That's right. Cinephiles is very efficient in its segues. <laughs> if nothing else. Um <laughs> Uh, we're back at the theater, and and finally we get inside. We got Grandpa there. We got all the Beatles there. Paul is mad at Grandpa because for good reason. Yeah. And I love he says, "You see, you know your trouble. You should have gone west to America. You would have been a senior citizen of Boston. But you took a wrong turn. And what happened? You're a lonely old man from Liverpool. Well, I'm clean. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, and the girls have started screaming." Because the show is about to actually begin. This is this is the payoff. This is the moment of truth. Yep. The piece de resistance, a Beatles concert. Yeah. Where you actually hear the music. <laughs> yeah, yep, exactly. <laughs> uh, and the first song is Tell Me Why You Cried. Tell me why you cried and why you lied to me. Scott. 
Oh my gosh. Tell me why. I don't have that what? down here. What? I don't have tell me why. What? I don't have tell me why. Although it is track number five on the CD, on the on the album. Uh, tell me why is, is a great song. How could I not have tell me why? Oh, well, I don't have tell me why. And this, what I would say is the most, we're going to sit back and watch concert footage. Like it's, a, it's, we're going to see the whole song. We're going to, we're kind of in a uh, regular watching a performance. We're not being stylistically unique in this because I think this is what we've been waiting for is to get to the actual show. Well, I'll tell you, tell me why it was written by John Lennon, either Paris or New York city. And it was recorded in eight takes on 27th of February, 1964. <laughs> That's the one they used. Uh, and it was the fourth take that they used that was released. There you go. Are you imitating? No, no, I would never. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes, you are. I love it. That's pretty good. Uh, movie Tell me release why. dates. This All is right. great. Movie <laughs> release dates. <laughs> and now we go into If I Fell. If I fell. And the one thing I'll say, I think the transition between the two songs is very rough. I think that is not strong. Yeah, There's, I, it, it, it kind of bumps you out. They did not find... And, and by the way, as a person who's edited music a bunch, sometimes it's really, really hard mm-hmm. to figure out songs at different keys, different tempos, and trying to find a smooth way to get between them. But this one isn't smooth. Yeah. Um, but now we're much more intimate. The camera is very close. We see the drumming at an odd angle. The crowd kind of fades in and out. This, we have like the close shot of the guitar moving up to John. Again, they've chosen a really different way to film this. Mm-hmm. And we're not in like the Ed Sullivan sitting back and watching the show. We're very intimately in, the, in with the band for a very intimate, intimate song. Yeah. I think you come back to I Should Have Known Better. <laughs> Sort of a bookend to the movie because it was the first uh not i mean I'm, I'm not including the opening credits but the first song you see the sort beatles surrealistically perform yeah. and uh and then they play that song complete and then they take the bow and then ringo the signature drum and you're into what i think is the beatles what's my favorite beatles song she loves you. She loves you. Wow. She loves wow. you is my favorite Beatles song. I think "She Loves You" is a better song than "I Want to Hold Your Hand." It has more energy. It has. It is. I, the, I like it better than "I Want to Hold Your Hand." I, I think it just "She Loves You." It is. You know, there's certain certain classic Beatles songs that you're sick to death of. Like I'm sick to death of "Let It Be." Uh, if I never hear "Let It Be" or "Yesterday Ever Again," I'm actually okay with that. Paul Paul's very upset with you about that. But but there are other classic Beatles songs that I never get tired of. That no matter how many times I hear it, whenever I do hear it, I keep it on or I turn it up. "She Loves You" is one of them. That's why it's my favorite. It's so funny that you're an early Beatles guy. I love the Beatles early I'm, stuff, and I'm a late Beatles guy. Is that right? I mean, I I love them all. I mean, I love the you know the whole thing. But no, if I could, I none of, none of those would be in my top ten Beatles songs. Oh, yeah, yeah, it all would be off of Sgt. Pepper. My, and my top and... ten, my top ten Beatles songs are between like "Please Please Me" and uh, "Help." 
Well, you know, those right. albums. Yeah, I just, I love the early stuff. I'm a middle Beatles guy. You know, yeah. like the night <laughs> your, before. Your Revolver, Rubber Soul. Revolver, Rubber Soul, and Sgt. Pepper's. Yeah. Those right. are my three yeah, favorites. Like Sgt. Pepper, before, I could listen to over and over again on repeat till I'm dead. Yeah, the Night Before, Another Girl, You're Gonna Lose That Girl, uh, Can't Buy Me Love, She Loves You, Things We Said Today, uh, All My Loving, um, uh, Thank You Girl, which is the B-side to uh, From Me to You. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm all about the early stuff. Oh, fascinating. Yep. I, I, I love it all, and I love both of you for loving the, the sections of Beatles that you love. Um, right now, and I will yes. say something else, She Loves You also, because that is the song we're in the middle, and this is the song where we really shift to the crowd, and you really see the screamers. Yeah, man. Oh, crazy. Yeah, absolutely crazy. And, of course, this was what it was to see a Beatles concert. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine... I'm a relatively emotionally restrained person. I can't imagine what it was that would make someone scream and weep uncontrollably at a concert for an hour or two. Well, try and imagine you're you're a fourteen year old girl. I am. Okay, and, got it. <laughs> you know that channel that inner fourteen year old girl, Steve. Mm-hmm. You know, just reach into that fourteen year old girl, and no, listen, I. I <laughs> I think I, I have my, she's, she's in there somewhere. My, my theories about the, why the world went nuts, uh, like, you know, the UK went crazy and then the Beatles went to America like maybe two months after JFK's assassination. Yeah, yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. That's what it was. That was a big, a big release, mm-hmm. a cathartic moment for a nation in mourning mm-hmm. that it was okay to smile and find joy again. And that after the, the, this, this, this rock star president was taken away from them, mm-hmm. and here come these four guys with weird suits and long hair, and, and uh, you know, that they, they sing this, this, this incredible music, and it gave them a reason to find joy yeah. and be happy again. And uh, that, that had a, and then from, from there, that just, uh, you know, the rest of the country saw that and picked up on it. Yep. That has so much to do with just the timing. It wasn't just, oh, you know, it's, it's the Beatles. And uh, it had so much to do with, with, with how, uh, you know, what, what, the, what was going on in the country at the time. Well, you could argue that with Sinatra, too, coming out of World War II. Sure. The yeah. same, the Bobby Soxers, all of that is, to, is that release of the sadness of the World War. You find a guy like and this. We need that. Yeah, we do. We do. Um, the Spice Girls, same thing, coming out of the nineties. Uh, Spice Iraq Girls. Was, I mean, you can't listen, deny. No, no. Take away, take away whether you like that music or not. Yeah. Spice World is actually a very good movie. No, oh, it is a man. good movie. And I got news for you: if you watch that film, it's it's a hard day's night. It, yeah. Oh, it, it is. basically is. Yeah. Isn't yeah. Richard E. Grant? Yep. The, yes, uh, is. Is. the the norm and shape and of that Cumming. movie. Yeah. It is a good film. Yeah. I mean, is you it know- the Citizen Kane of girl group <laughs> pop movies? <laughs> oh my god! Well, how many girl group uh, uh, movies, yeah, uh, movies do we have? Yeah, that's right. uh, you know, what is it? Uh, remember the Satisfaction with Justine Bateman and Julia right. Roberts? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, but this was an actual. But, uh, yeah. but no, I I uh, you know I remember just like you know dissing on the Spice Girl, Spice Girls because they were the Spice Girls. But then having seen the film, and I went, you know what? I actually like the movie. Yeah, you know, I saw it. I have, I don't remember liking it. <laughs> I don't have a lot. Go back and watch it. Yes, is it? Steve. Is it? We'll see. It's been a ten years. Um, we can do it. One more thing. One yeah. more thing about uh, she loves you is. Do you know what rock 
future rock star is in the audience for this scene. Oh, okay. Now, Ooh. now, okay. Here's the thing. Yes, this future rock star is is in the audience, but you don't see him no. because the clip that you would have seen him in was cut. Oh, that song was you can't do that. Mm. The Beatles, uh, you know, recorded a version of you can't do that for the movie A Hard Day's Night, and in the audience, and you see him during this scene is uh, is Phil Collins. Oh wow. Like 12 years old or yeah, something like that. Yeah, he's a kid. How funny. And if you watch the clip, the deleted scene of You Can't Do That, you can catch young Phil Collins. <laughs> but because that song, You Can't Do That, was cut from the actual movie, you never see it. Our concert is over. Our director is exhausted. And of course, what do the Beatles have to do? They have to head off for their yeah, next gig. Catch another concert. Yep. Uh, and I love that, that Shake turns to Lennon and says, there's only one thing I have to say to you, Don Lennon. What's that? You're a swine. swine. <laughs> and they run off to that helicopter. I would, I would argue that is, the mo- that is the only inauthentic moment in the movie. That you're a swine? Yeah. Shake yeah. would have never gotten the best of John. And it's, a, it's not an earned uh, mm. comeback. So it works because it's funny in a way, but I, I also think it's the most inauthentic moment in the movie. We take off in the helicopter. Drop those Beatles photos. This is great. They're showering down, and now you have the ending credits. Mm-hmm. The ending credits are the montage of photographs yes. uh, taken by Robert Freeman, mm-hmm. who took those famous, you know, headshots that lined the album cover. Uh, you know, on the on the United Artists soundtrack album, the red album that has the seven songs in the movie, plus the instrumental of this boy and mm-hmm. other other incidental music in the film. That was the uh, sort of half uh, from the noses up, you know, just seeing the foreheads and the hair mm-hmm. of the four shots of John Paul, George and Ringo. But the actual British album, the proper the uh, Hard Day's Night album, which has uh, on side A, it's a hard day's night. I should have known better. If I fell, happy just to dance with you. And I love her. Tell me why and can't buy me love. And on side B, it's any time at all. I'll cry instead. Things we said today. When I get home, you can't do that. And I'll be back. Uh, that album uh, with uh, the four shots of John, the four of Paul, the four of George, and the four of Ringo. Those shots were all taken during a massive photo session by Robert Freeman. And those photos are what we see at the end during the closing credits of A oh, Hard cool. Day's Night. Oh, cool. Did you like that I just gave you the entire Hard Day's Night album you did. in order on side A and side B? I am blown away. I care, mister. Yeah, you do. That is how this man. A lesson for all future guests of the cinephiles. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Let's study this episode. Exactly. Don't sing it. Bring it. <laughs> <laughs> so we've reached the end of the film, and of course, as they're releasing this movie, nobody has any idea what this is going to be. So they go because well, one of the things that, particularly back in the day, they had to do was figure out. How many prints of this movie are we going to make? How many theaters is this going to play in? And they go, well, we'll just put out a few. Uh, Within a couple of months, there were 1,600 prints in circulation. Wow. 1964, that's amazing. 1,600 1600 theaters is playing this simultaneously. It is a monster, huge, massive hit. That totally, I really say, this is where the studio system, I believe, started to go, we don't know what we're doing. Yeah. That leads to three years from now is The Graduate. You know, three years from now is Bonnie and Clyde. Good point. 
right we're coming right up on um uh easy rider yep you know like all these films that are going oh we're going to be run by the youth culture that's a good point because in 1964 you had movies like uh dr strangelove right you had mary poppins uh you had goldfinger you had viva las vegas uh but really this is just sort of like leading into that that massive fundamental shift in the system which was 1967, which was uh, which was really clarified by the diversity of the films that were nominated for Best Picture that year. That's an, Do- a fascinating Do- year. Fascinating year. The Doctor Doolittle, uh, In the Heat of the Night, uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Graduate, and Bonnie and Clyde. Yep. You know that those those are the movies, yeah. and they're they're no two are from the same side of the brain. You yep. know, uh, and then after that, like you said. Um, you know, 69, you know, uh, uh, Midnight Cowboy yeah. and, and Easy Rider. And, you know, then you're then you're into the new Hollywood of the early 70s with Altman, Scorsese, Coppola, right. Hal Ashby. Ugh, you know, what's great. funny that just occurred to me as you were saying that, because I was thinking about like, wow, the distance between Mary Poppins and Viva Las Vegas to Midnight Cowboy, you know, and those films is. And I then we were also talking about the distance between the Beatles' yeah. first album and the Beatles' last album. Is that just there's this thing that happens in the '60s? The '60s, more than any other day, I am so fascinated by the '60s yeah. because of just the quantum leap of change that happened during that time. And I don't mean from when the '60s started on January first, nineteen sixty-one. I mean, when the 60s started on November 22nd, 1963, from that point on, from November 22nd, 1963, the death of JFK, that's when the 60s started. And at the end of 1969, with the Rolling Stones concert at Altamont, when the Hells Angels killed the guy, that's when the 60s ended. And look at everything that happened during this time. You went from a hard day's night to, to, uh, to, you know, let it be the white album. Let it be. Mm-hmm. You went from, uh, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, Mary Poppins to, uh, uh, you know, Midnight Cowboy and Easy right. Rider. A nurse you, Fletcher. In you went. Nest. You went from uh, uh, Gemini, uh, Mercury uh, Gemini to yeah. Apollo Eleven. Yeah. Uh, the, you went from from just a uh, an occupation of Vietnam to a mess in right. Vietnam, yep. and it all happened. Within just a few years. Yep. No, it's absolutely. And I think this movie is a key marker, a milestone on that journey. You know, I think this is the beginning of it. Yeah. Uh, John, what are your final thoughts final on thoughts, a hard day's night? Final thoughts on a hard day's night. If you're listening to us, a lot of you guys listen to us before you watch the movie. You listen to us break it down, which I always find fascinating. I would never do this, but I respect film fans who do it. A lot of our cinephile fans say, you guys motivate me to watch certain movies. Sometimes I'll listen to your episode and then go into the movie. I envy every single person who's never seen A Hard Day's Night, who has listened to us break this thing down, and it's about to experience it for the first time. You are going to have a permanent grin on your face the whole time while you're watching the movie. You're going to fall in love with these songs again, fall in love with the Beatles at this time in their lives, before all the crap that came, before all the lunacy that came afterwards, before all the, you know, the, the, the infighting and all the separation. And will John and, and Paul ever get back together? Will they perform then John's assassination? All of that is still way out there in the future. 
when you go and watch A Hard Day's Night, you go back and enjoy the vibrancy of your own youth, how you were in your 20s and how crazy it was and how fun and how much you loved like poking fun at the establishment and running around and doing the things you're doing. This is what I think is the biggest takeaway from the movie is it captures the uh, essence of youth and enjoyment and hubris of your 20s uh, in a way that's so perfectly done and the perfect vehicle in the Beatles to do that for you. And so that's why I always go back to it. Whenever I'm like needing a, a remembrance of being young again, I'll put on Hard Day's Night and I'll smile all through it. And so I encourage anyone who maybe even hasn't seen it in a while to go back and enjoy the movie again. Maybe you're having a tough day in your life or a tough, you maybe in your tough moments in your life, go and watch this movie. It'll at least make you smile and it might even make you a little bit happy. Absolutely. That was beautiful. What do you think? That was absolutely beautiful, John. And I, and I agree completely. You know, my, my, my final thoughts on A Hard Day's Night, I can never, th- I can never uh, watch A Hard Day's Night enough. I never go through periods of time where I have, oh, I haven't watched A Hard Day's Night in a while. I will always go back and watch A Hard Day's Night because of, because of the feeling that that movie gives me. The, the, like you said, John, the joy, the, yeah. the vibrancy of it. And there's a part of the film, there's a part of the of the essence of a hard day's night that it's like the last the last innocence that we felt yeah. yep. because it was right after that that things really really started to change. And and after, especially after this conversation, you know, the seeds of change were right there from the very beginning. They were just done a little subtle, but that this conversation made me realize more than I ever realized before how much of a of change of the uh uh you know the new generation sort of like taken over mm-hmm. um but the, it, it, the 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 joy and the happiness that i love about the beatles is right there in this movie mm-hmm. the music the personalities the style of the filmmaking it is 87 minutes of pure 100 percent joy yeah. and it never gets old it is not dated in any way so what if it's in black and white so what if it's 1964 the beatles are timeless a hard day's night is timeless here's what i'll say i really really like this movie and i would totally sit down and watch it again today Mm -hmm. but i love the beatles and so the thing that i would say is that i want you to watch this movie and look for all the things we're talking about the joy the challenging of authority the changes in culture the changes in the way film is made the sense of humor and it is great and i know that you will enjoy it but if you haven't listened to the beatles what i would say Mm -hmm. is start listening and i know a lot of you out there who are younger is going oh here's these old guys again talking about the beatles (laughs) blah 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 the beatles the the Beatles. And sure, I get that. But I'm telling you, take some time and go listen to them. Listen to the early music and think of Scott Mance. Listen to the middle years and think of John Rocha. And listen to those later albums and think of me. And take the time to listen to the the evolution of music things that you are listening today so much of it has been influenced by this band you will hear hard rock stuff and helter skelter and come together you will hear uh classical the beginning music classical yeah. music you, Rigby, yeah. you will hear big horns that are going to be things that we're going to hear later on in funk you're going to hear all of the challenging poetic beautiful 
ways of making music and in particular the idea of an album Mm -hmm. which is something that we very much lost today with our downloading songs you know one song at a time is that this is one of the greatest evolutions in art history happens with those 10 years of the Beatles. And so I have no final thoughts of the Beatles because I'm going to be thinking about the Beatles for the rest of my life. Yeah. Amen. All right. So that's what we, that's what we think of a hard day's night. Of course, we always want to hear what you think of the hard day's night in particular, if you haven't spent a lot of time with the Beatles before come find us on our Facebook page, just do a search for the cinephiles, C I N E dash F I L E S. Go on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. It's the best way for people to get our podcast and leave a review while you're there. They're really important. If you can't do iTunes, maybe do YouTube, maybe do Stitcher, maybe do TuneIn, use Google Play. Lots of ways to do our podcast. You could even visit our website at thecinephiles.net, C-I-N-E-F-I-L-E-S.net. All of our episodes are there. You can buy all the movies there. You can stream them through Amazon Prime. And if you want to support the show, you can do it on Patreon, patreon.com slash the cinephiles. You can pledge and hear additional audio content from us, see announcements from, from us. You can uh, uh, pledge to uh, pick a movie that we're actually going to review on the show. And if you wanted to reach me, well, you could do it on Twitter at SR Morris. John, where could they reach you? You can always reach me at The Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram. And of course, the top 10 show under the Schmoes No feed. Go there on iTunes. Go to the Schmoes No feed. Da- uh, subscribe to them, and you'll get to top 10 every week and if you haven't bought your ticket speaking of the Beatles speaking of London speaking of the UK if you have not bought your tickets to come see Matt Nose and I do the top 10 show live February 23rd in London we are doing a live show 200 seat theater we're 80% sold out you got to go to www.kingsplace.co.uk I am absolutely visiting Abbey Road when I'm there again. It'll be 20 years since I've been there, so it'll be nice to be back again and go to Abbey Road one more time and take pictures. I still have those pictures of myself. And maybe Scott Mance and I are going to find ourselves seeing Paul McCartney live next year in July. July 13th. July 13th, right over there. 2019, we are going to see Paul McCartney live at Dodgers Stadium in Los Angeles that is absolutely positively going to happen and is going to be the greatest concert in the history of concerts because we are going to see Paul McCartney live in concert at Dodgers Stadium. What did you say on Facebook? Is How many times have you seen Paul McCartney? This will be my 23rd. Wow. Amazing. 23, 23 times I've seen Paul McCartney Amazing. live. Yes, and, and I, I will see him 23 more times. It's a religious experience. It really is. I it saw absolutely him. is. I've only seen him once. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Well, at the like, Hollywood Bowl or where? UC Berkeley at the stadium, Cal gotcha. Stadium in Berkeley. Gotcha. I actually when I saw when I saw him in New York at uh, Madison Square Garden in the uh, uh, last uh, September, September 2017, I was in the second row. Oh, my brother oh. bought tickets oh, what? and we were just we were leaning against the stage and he was 10 feet away. What? Yep. Can't imagine. Oh my amazing. god. Oh, wow. I, I kept pinching myself. It was amazing. It was amazing. Scott, thank you again so much for coming on the show. This has been an absolute joy. I'm so happy we finally got to do this. This is a hard one to work out. We had false starts because we all have different schedules. (laughs) This was a hard day's night. (laughs) uh, To to finally sit here and talk about the Beatles and a Beatles movie with you, uh, this is definitely a highlight for me. Make sure you follow me on Twitter and Instagram at MovieMance, MovieMance with a TZ. And I want to know... What you thought of our chat about the Beatles, our chat about A Hard Day's Night, I want to know, and I mean it, 
tweet me or Instagram me, whatever it is you want. Make sure you hit me up and tell me what your favorite Beatles song is, yes. what your favorite Beatles album is, and who your favorite Beatle is. Ooh. And I do want to know, and I mean it, hit me up on Twitter. What is your favorite Beatles solo album? Wow. Mm, what's yours, John? <sighs> solo. Solo. You mean Instant Karma is probably, or uh, the, the double album, uh, uh, the Double junk, Fantasy? Double Fantasy is probably my favorite one. Uh, it's tough. It's, it's tough. tough. What's your favorite Beatles solo well, album? What's hard is that it's, maybe this is just a cop out. I've listened to the Wings Greatest Hits album over and oh, wing, over Wingspan and over, or something like that. Wait, wait, it's just Wings, Wings Greatest, Greatest Hits. Oh, Wings yeah, Greatest Hits. It is. I just listened yeah. to that a million times. So that's probably my favorite my Beatles solo album is Band on the Run, Paul McCartney and Wings, yeah. landmark December nineteen seventy three album. It is Paul's masterpiece. It is the album that Paul McCartney did that stands side by side on everything he did with the Beatles. Mm -hmm. Band on the Run, Jet, Bluebird, uh, uh, Mrs. Vanderbilt, Let Me Roll It, Mamunia, uh, No Words, Picasso's Last Words, 1985. <laughs> Every song on that album is great. Honorable mention to All Things Must Pass by George Harrison yes, sure, and Imagine by John Lennon. Those Imagine. are the top three. I'll throw out Flowers in the Dirt. There I don't care what anybody says. I, I love like, Flowers, I like in, flowers the in the Dirt. That is still... Flowers in the Dirt is great. Still I listen to it all June the time. Of 1989. Him and Elvis Costello. Yep, fantastic stuff. And on that note, I think that is it for this week and we will see you next time for another great film on The Cinephiles. Ooh.